Hello and welcome to episode 19 of Caged In Presents Coppola Connections, brought to you by the Breadcrumbs Collective and hosted by me, Petros Pat Syllabus. And this week on the podcast, we are going back to school. Happens to be around the same time that schools go back to school, so call that kismet, baby, because the film we are talking about is Wes Anderson's 1998 coming-of-age comedy drama, Rushmore. And to join me for this conversation is David Trumbull, a third-time return guest, but we'll get into that in due time. If this is your first time with the podcast, we watch every single film in the collective Coppola filmography to determine, are they the greatest film family of all time? We will obviously be talking about this film in all its gory details. There'll be spoilers aplenty. So if you haven't seen it, head on over to a handy document in the show notes that will tell you if and where this film is streaming. I'll give you a hint. It's Disney+. Plus. And as always, if you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by heading over to patreon.com forward slash pod or hit a link in the show notes that you can buy me a nice cup of coffee. So all that's left to do is to join as many clubs and societies as you can, befriend an old businessman, fall in love with your high school teacher, get kicked out as we head on over to Rushmore Academy and make some Coppola connections. Nineteen ninety-eight was a busy year for the Coppola clan. Nick Cage was busy taking chances in Snake Eyes and City of Angels, and his then wife Patricia Arquette was in both High Low Country and Goodbye Lover. Jonathan Schwartzman was busy helping Michael Bay capture his world saving oil crew in Armageddon, whilst his younger brother took his first steps into acting. The younger brother in question is Jason Schwartzman. And the focus of today's episode is Wes Anderson's coming-of-age comedy, Rushmore. To help me navigate the world of private schools, extracurricular activities, and forbidden love, is animator, story artist, bombardment club founder, fencing team captain, <laughs> kung fu yellow belt, and third-time return guest, David Trumbull. How are you, David? Hi. As always, it is a pleasure and privilege to be among the Petros Pat Syllabus players Yes, and and today's today's um, performance will be a um, a very small black box theatre version of Rushmore. But, but it'll be a hit we... play. <laughs> of course, of course, we're, we're we're firing on all cylinders. We're doing um we're doing it the Max Fisher way. No, all, all the all the stops are being pulled out. For <laughs> yeah, we've got a model train in the background. It's going to go past yeah. the window. <laughs> well, before we get into talking about Rushmore too much. When did you first become aware of the Coppola family? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I was trying to to trace my memory back, and it actually, I was aware, like the first Coppola family member I was aware of had to have been Nicolas Cage, but the first time I was aware that Coppola was a dynasty was, you know, conveniently enough uh, through Jason Schwartzman, um, in that I read an interview with him in Empire Magazine shortly after like he blew up from Rushmore and he was basically 
like making a running joke in his interview about dropping the names of all of his family members like <laughs> like they were hot like so he was like i was talking to my aunt oh that's you know this and i was talking to my cousin you know nicholas cage and and like and and my mother you know talia Shire. like it was it was it was just really um the first time that i was aware of oh okay so not only is francis ford coppola the director of apocalypse now and the godfather you know none of those movies i had seen at that point i think or at least seen in in in, in their entirety you know, um, it was the first time I realized that, oh, oh, right. So there are people in his orbit who, who, you know, if you, if you are related to him, then that, that actually carries an awful lot of cachet in, 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 in the film business. And, and yeah, so it was through, it was through Max Fisher himself. Well, it's really interesting because Jason Schwartzman tells a story on David Letterman from 1999, kind of on like the press tour for this film, that it was, at a party at Francis Ford Coppola's house that one of the casting agents for this film was there and kind of like said to him, like, you kind of look like a kid we're looking for for this film, Rushmore. <laughs> like, do you want to, do you want to, do you want to audition for it? Like, at least so it's like already you've got that kind of like unknowing nepotism. And like, there's a lot of yeah. like, there's a lot of like knowing nepotism in the Coppola family. There's some unjustified, like people go like, Sophia Coppola in The Godfather 3, I think, is like unju yeah. unjustified uh, nepotism because I think it was kind of like a fact of they were they were struggling. Like all, all of like there was kind of tragedy uh, beset that kind of like the casting of that. Like, um, yeah, one of the one of the actresses had like a tragedy in her life and then Winona Ryder pulled out at the last minute. And I think it was kind of like yeah. Francis Ford Coppola was like, oh, I've done. Sophia, you do it. Like, like, I mean, like it, it actually feels weirdly human and understandable to think that after those setbacks, you would just go with somebody who you trusted, you know, uh, irrespective of whether or not they were necessarily right for the role. You'd be like, well, I know Sophia. Sophia can handle the material or whatever. And it just feels like an unfortunate perfect storm of like everyone and their dog wanted the third Godfather movie, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's like, it was like a, it probably ended up being underwhelming in that sort of like crystal skull kind of like mentality of like, don't actually get what you want all the time <laughs> because that's not, it's not necessarily what you actually really need. And so, yeah, like I, I just feel sympathy for her because she probably had to live that down for a very long time. But yeah, with, with Schwartzman, I don't necessarily think of it as nepotism um, because of the fact that like they, they interviewed like thousands of people for that role. So, so the fact that he got it, um, over those thousands of people doesn't necessarily feel like it was because he was a Coppola because he doesn't even have the family name you know he's not even Jason Coppola mm -hmm. so so I don't know how much it played into it you know but it is kind of funny considering you know obviously we're discussing Wes Anderson's movies he's worked with Roman Coppola as well uh, on on his scripts and things and it's like Wes Anderson is not married into the family but he is as close as you can get to the family without being a Coppola in, in my mind, like it's like if if this was Seinfeld, he'd be the Kramer who would just walk in to the apartment without yes. a key and just have himself <laughs> to something in the fridge. That's how I think of he basically is a Coppola in anything but name. You know what I mean? Yeah, and we'll get into it. Like I, I think he kind of like knew the connection as well because there's something hard baked into the script of this film that is like yes. a, a, a reference to to. There are one or two little doffs of the cat. Yeah, yeah, sure. yeah, yeah, and um. It's really interesting you kind of say that thing that he is like um an honorary copper, as it were. And it's um and the thing with yeah, with Roman, but like it was it was Jason who's the, the first coppler to work with him. So obviously like he kind of yeah. uh Roman hadn't hadn't come onto his radar. And that like 
that casting of Jason Schwartzman, like like you said, like there were thousands of kids, and it's on the Moonrise Kingdom like commentary track. They say like that that wasn't the kid that Owen Wilson and Wes Anderson mm. had in mind. They kind of mm. had this like image of this like Mick Jagger looking kid, kind of scrawny, like, and then. Mm. I, I, you got Jason Swartz. Probably not a million miles away from what Wes Anderson looked like when he was 15, I'm it, sure. Exactly. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, like yeah. Iggy Pop style, Gollum-esque, you know, lithe figure. But but it, it, it's so funny because, like, Jason Schwartzman, he... I I think my, my, my relationship to this movie is really specific, mm-hmm. but it was obviously everybody's first introduction to him, you know, all told. And I think regardless of whether or not any nepotism had anything to do with it. He's so fantastic in that role that consequently, even when I see him in like Scott Pilgrim versus the world, I never really think of him as anything other than Max Fisher. <laughs> like he is Max Fisher for all time. Whenever I see him playing another part, I'm like, oh, it's Max Fisher being this guy. I still feel like I'm watching one of Max Fisher's plays because he's just so indelible in that role. So, Well, what's wonderfully perfect about that kind of like life outside of the film and like the kind of, max fisher character living on um i sent it to you a while ago and anyone who's kind of listening to seek out these amazing like mtv like stings yeah. they did for the mtv music uh, movie awards uh from 1999 like is the max fisher players putting on some of the biggest films like uh, yeah so- that was really funny i love that link and it's funny how you mentioned that like they had a different look in mind for the character of max because if you look at i just rewatched bottle rocket which is Anderson's first movie that he made with Owen Wilson, um, and and it was it was important for me to watch because uh, it was the only Wes Anderson movie I had yet to see, and it actually really informed my experience of this because it was like the second movie, the second feature, the second album, kind of like taking all of the things you learned from that that first scrappy entry. But the funny thing about watching it was that Luke Wilson is the main character, and Luke Wilson's haircut, that kind of slightly longer, sort of mm. slightly curled bowl haircut that he has is just 100% Wes Anderson's haircut. So I was just like, it, it, it reeked of that, like he is, the hero is the filmmaker, just just dramatized, you know what I mean? And so it, it, I, it makes perfect sense that their idea for Max Fisher would have been slightly different. Well, there's like running themes throughout Wes Anderson films, and there's kind of things that inform the films beyond that, that we'll get into in some like detail yeah. A, a bit further down the line but it's like you kind of see things in Rushmore and you're like oh that's kind of like built upon then in the Royal Tenenbaums and then it's yeah. like there's something else like in Rushmore that and then... obviously there's there's the the Jacques Cousteau connection of the fact that there's a book and and documentary footage that you see of like underwater reefs and diving yes that obviously will be touched upon in life aquatic yeah and and then you have like the yeah the character of uh max fisher's father who's played by seymour cassell he's so sweet in that film he plays he he plays the um the explorer that gets killed he plays he plays the guy who gets killed at the beginning of esteban yeah he plays esteban at the beginning of esteban uh, and 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 it is that thing like like kind of there's the max fisher players like wes anderson Mm. is max fisher in a way because like he's kind of built this repertory theatre of actors that he kind of uses Absolutely. over and they over 100% again. 100% are the Wes Anderson play. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> You're in a Wes Anderson movie, it's almost like you've got a, uh, you've got a, an in for all time with his catalogue. 
Like he'll put you in a tiny role, even if you show up for like a second or in a voiceover. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like Harvey Keitel's entire filmography post, you know what I mean? Like a certain point is just what showing up in Wes Anderson movie shot. Yeah, and there's like I, I love I love the kind of like smaller s- smaller characters who kind of like pop up from here and there. So there's the like mm. um, groundskeeper in this film who's got a fantastic. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he's he's got a fantastic name, which is like Mister Little Jeans or something like that. Like, <laughs> and then he turns up in the Royal Tenenbaums as Pagoda. He's the guy who keeps stabbing Gene Hackman. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Out of some like weird sense of of honor, I love it. These are the names that define our world: the artists who shaped our minds, the rebels who challenged our views. But of all these legends, there is one that stands above all others. I'm sorry, did someone say my name? <laughs> What's the secret, Max? The secret? I think you just gotta find something you love to do and then do it for the rest of your life. For me, it's going to Rushmore. Sharp little guy. He's one of the worst students we've got. We're putting you on what we call sudden death academic probation. Could I see some documentation on that, please? Did you invite that kid to your party? Max Fisher. Come on, Dad, there's going to be girls there. I'd rather die. Pull your head out of your... Maybe I'm spending too much of my time starting up clubs and putting on plays. It's time, homie. Kiss me, little one. I should probably be trying harder to score chicks. I like your hat. You're a teacher here, aren't you? Oh, I'm so glad you could come. I want you to meet a friend of mine, Peter Flynn, Max Fisher. Hi. Who's this guy? Has it ever crossed your mind that you're far too young for me? I like your nurse's uniform, guy. These are OR scrubs. Oh, are they? I don't know what you see in her. I, I don't think she's right for you. What's that supposed to be? Hello, Herman. How are you, Rosemary? I know about you and the teacher. Max, no? He's about five foot three, 112 pounds, glasses. You know, you and Herman deserve each other. You're both little children. War does funny things to men. Well, you'll find a pair of safety glasses and some earplugs underneath your seats. Please feel free to use them. What do you think of Max's latest opus? It's good, but let's hope it's got a happy ending. Rushmore. Thank you very much. So is it fair to say that Rushmore would have been your first introduction to Jason Schwartzman? Yes, and my first introduction to Wes Anderson, obviously. But, but um, I mean, it's, it's weird. We're going to go into it in detail, but like this is... When I uh, agreed to do this this pod about it, it was because Rushmore is my favorite Wes Anderson movie. Mm-hmm. And I had not watched it in many years because it was a very formative film of my teenage years. And I actually must confess, when I sat down to rewatch it for the pod, I had a lot of trepidation because I was worried. I didn't want it to have aged poorly or to have dated or mm-hmm. to have become like, I don't know. Like, I was just worried that maybe my impression of it, because I felt so close 
to the characters and specifically my experience of growing up, you know, uh, as reflected in the film that like, I was worried like, God, I really hope it's not like underwhelming when I watch it again. Like, I, I hope it's still my favorite. And I, I'm, you know, very pleasantly surprised to say that it is actually grown in my estimation. Um, and, 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 and that's really saying something considering how truly uh, beautiful Wes Anderson's films have become. Obviously his style has become truly impeccable, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and so this is nothing against how like absolutely beautifully conceived and constructed his other movies are, but Rushmore just hits so many truthful beats to me that, that uh, hit me on an emotional level. And so it's like, I'm very interested to talk about it because you know how uh, the last few times I've been on with you, yeah. it's been me indirectly causing you to get emotional about being a dad. <laughs> like me, basically just me starting to get you to cry every time. It's like, it's my turn. You know what I mean? This is like, this is a movie that, that, that has a huge emotional resonance with me because uh, it speaks a lot to my teenage years and like, you know, not to sound you know, like I'm overly editorializing, but I feel a lot like a recovering Max Fisher <laughs> myself, you know? And so, so it'll be very interesting to, to unburden myself with uh, some, some, some stories and, and, and really dig into why this movie is so beautiful to me. Well, to that point, I think what's fantastic about this and kind of many of Wes Anderson films, I think Moonrise Kingdom, as I spoke to mm. Jeanette from Southern Double Deep about, is that like, they kind of work on two different levels and like depending mm. on like how old you are when you watch them so like when you first watch moonrise kingdom like for me mm. it was kind of like that thing i was like oh yeah like i'm relating to this almost like remembering what it was like to be a kid but then mm. like watching it now like you know what i mean 30 years old and like being a father yeah. i'm like oh i'm very much watching this through the eyes of Bruce Willis, Bill Murray, and Francis McDormand, and even like yeah. Edward Norton, and it, I think it's that thing with with Rushmore. Like, if it hits you at the age of fifteen, like the same mm. age as Max Fisher, you're very much kind of aligned with the way he is, and kind of like mm. like the way. Yes. Yeah. Whereas, like, as you get older, you start to look at it through the Herman Bloom, like the the Bill Murray character, and kind mm. of like because it is very much this this tale of kind of one one child wanting to be a man and one man mm. wanting to recapture something from his youth. Yeah, well, a lot of Wes Anderson's movies are about um, children trying desperately to be adults and adults acting like children. Mm -hmm. the, 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 he, um, um, everyone is a master of self-deception uh, um, in, in, in his stories. But um, I think what sets apart... Moonrise Kingdom and Rushmore specifically to me is that um, is that they are the two films of his that I think feel the closest to real life. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean that uh, to disparage the other movies, but the other movies are about very heightened things. So like Owen Wilson and Wes Anderson described Rushmore's reality as being a bit like, ironically for me, now that I'm working on Roald Dahl <laughs> series at Netflix, like, like a Roald Dahl world, yeah. like, like, like something out of a book. And, and uh, you know, obviously that gets more and more pronounced in Wes Anderson's films all the way through to him directing Fantastic Mr. Fox, you know, uh, which is a Roald Dahl book. But um, uh, what's interesting about it is that even though his style is, all the DNA of that, of that stylized approach is there and present and fantastic in Rushmore, he still has a lot of handheld and he's still graduating from Bottle Rocket mm -hmm. and 
consequently, it still feels like it's mostly taking place in the real world. Like Max Fisher himself is heightened and stylized, but there's an awful lot of times where he hits up against reality. Yeah. And 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 jarringly and fantastically so. But um, I think what makes this movie and Moonrise Kingdom particularly powerful to me is that I just feel like they're more relatable to the audience as things that could have actually happened to you in that like not everyone in the world is going to be a Tenenbaum mm -hmm. and not everyone in the world is going to be an oceanographer like Steve Zissou. Like those are elevated heightened realities about people who are true prodigies and, you know, like, like people who have, who have like got narcissistic parents and, and like distant mothers and not everyone has that experience, but I think everyone, or at least, you know, most people, most sensitive people who, who had a, a you know, who lived through their teens has been Max Fisher at some point or had a crush, mm -hmm. you know, that, that, that got out of control. I think it's the same with Moonrise Kingdom because everyone can remember young love and being a kid and just like trying to be like an adult, even though you, you're nowhere close to being one. You know, I, I think that's why they're particularly believable to me. Well, I think Rushmore is the, the last film that like uh, Wes Anderson made before it departs into Wes Anderson land. Like, yes, before he becomes it, similar to Kubrick, it's like if you look at Paths of Glory, yes, you know that is a movie that's like, you know, actually a really really tightly paced movie. It's before he becomes super indulgent and like I think this movie Rushmore is is under ninety minutes if you don't if if you don't include the credits, you know. So so it's like it, it, brevity is is also present because he's just figuring out his style and stuff. But you know, then it becomes this massive, like you can tell the, the, the next movie he's making that's about to come out, you know, once the pandemic lifts is going to be massive, you know, just the, just the scope of it, the scale of it, the, the cast, it's probably incredibly long, you know, because he's grown accustomed to being able to, to have latitude with the audience. But it is interesting to watch these, these early movies, especially this one where there's just, there's just no fat on it. It's, yeah. it's a perfectly paced, structured story, you know. So do you mind telling us a brief synopsis of this film? But for anyone who out there may not have seen it, I don't know why you're listening to this podcast, but could you give us a brief synopsis? So the plot of Rushmore, it's so simple. It's just a story about this kid, Max Fisher. He's the son of a barber, comes from humble beginnings, but he wrote a little one-act play about Watergate when he was a kid because he's a, he's a precocious writer, if nothing else. And his mother, who's now dearly departed, loved his play so much that she submitted it to this private school, Rushmore Academy. And so he was like, he was like a moonshot, you know, working class student who got in. And so the story begins with Max excelling in all these extracurricular activities at Rushmore because he's trying so desperately to be um, something that he isn't. He's trying to be this brilliant genius um, uh, academic. And yet, it's revealed that he's one of their worst students and is failing miserably in, in all of the tests and essays and papers that actually require a correct answer. You know, that actually, you know, like, he's actually not as bright as he thinks he is or, or says he is. And so the film is all about him, um, his entire life in Rushmore, like, uh, is thrown into jeopardy when he develops uh, an infatuation with a teacher called Miss Cross, uh, played by Olivia Williams. And that brings him into conflict with everyone else, including the school, including his friend uh, um, Herman Bloom, played by Bill Murray. And it, it, the story charts this this absolutely just like perfect infatuation stages story, where it charts every single stage of first love, 
of, of, of becoming hyperbolically obsessed and then being shut down and losing it all and realizing that you have to build yourself up out of something true as opposed to something imagined. And, and so it, it, it's a story of, of, of coming of age, um, uh, but done in Wes Anderson's you know, trademark uh, persnickety style. And, and it's, it's just glorious. It's really interesting that they got Jason Schwartzman for the lead in this. Uh, for one, mm. you mentioned about like the playwriting. Obviously, it's like a a key like thing mm. throughout this film. Is that like Francis Ford Coppola when the kind of Coppola children were young during like summer holidays and stuff like that would set them a task of like writing a one act play, <laughs> and because he kind of had this like grand estate in that in the Napa Valley would get them to like go right you got you you got three days you got a couple of days to kind of like get your get your play written and then we're going to perform it we've got like a kind of theater set up that sounds simultaneously awesome and terrifying like can you imagine being a kid having a panic attack because you're like the least writing inclined coppola but then, like, so Jason Schwartzman, like, it's it, one of the many interviews I've listened to. He, like, mm. it's mentioned that he kind of wrote this one act, like, Tennessee Williams inspired play. So, like, <laughs> he has that element of a Max Fisher very yeah. much inside of him. But there's a like, there's an interesting metatextual irony of the fact that he's probably more in real life a Tenenbaum than he is a Fisher. You know, like he actually doesn't come from the, from a barber's uh, shop. Mm-hmm. You know, like he's he's someone who who's a legacy yeah. uh, uh, artist, and and so that's an interesting like dynamic because he does he is perfect for this role of Max. Yet his experience in real life is probably much more. Um, uh, uh, is it Margot uh, Tenenbaum played by Gwyneth Paltrow, who actually is an exceptional playwright? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the adopted daughter of, of um, Gene Hackman in that film. Like, um, it, it, weirdly, I, I wonder if uh, Wes Anderson actually gleaned anything from from his experience with Schwartzman for that movie, uh, because you know that that's probably more what it must be like to be in the Coppola family is the Tenenbaum. Well, there's like this is probably the only chance I'll get to say it on the podcast, but uh, Jason Schwartzman was supposed to be the character Mordecai in the Royal Tenenbaums which was like written as an actual character instead of a falcon but like mm, I think because that's there, amazing. there was too many moving parts in that film because you've kind of got that like yeah. all star cast and kind of everyone's got their individual threads and stuff like that they were kind of like yeah. we we haven't got time for for an, for an, for another thread and kind of dropped him and it's very interesting as well because there's a lot of speculation online so there's a there's a scene of one of Richie's tennis matches in the Royal Tenenbaums, mm. and the um, commentator sounds exactly like Jason Schwartzman. And it's it's been revealed that it's actually Wes Anderson, which kind of makes me think that, like, as much as there is that thing that you mentioned earlier of, like, Wes Anderson being, like, a kind of surrogate Coppola, mm. it's almost, like, very much... Because around this time as well, like uh, Jason Schwartzman, like would have lost his father Jack. So like, it's almost like Wes Anderson took him under his wing, and like, mm. kind of like, um, Jason Schwartzman's like affectation, the way he speaks, like even in mm. interviews, kind of like feels like it's born out of this kind of relationship he's developed, yeah, with Wes Anderson, which I think is like 
wholly fascinating. But um, well, yeah, and, and it, it definitely speaks to the themes of all of Wes Anderson's movies, which is like people trying to paper over big voids in themselves, like absences, an absent parent or an absent child. Like even Bill Murray in Rushmore playing Bloom, he has two sons who he actually can't stand, who he has no no connection with whatsoever. He doesn't even understand them, and yet he likes max and weirdly max is actually more in has more in common with bloom than any other character because bloom is clearly like a self-made man and max is a barber shop son you know like it, it it's funny because like max is 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 impressing bloom and bloom even offers for him to come work for him he actually gives him like a golden opportunity and max passes it up because max does not want to be anything other than this rushmore you know uh uh, Yankee, and and so it's like it's like uh, Max is constantly being offered these opportunities to be who he really could be, mm-hmm. as opposed to what he thinks he should be. But uh, but but it is fascinating to see that like there are these themes of of fathers and sons and sisters and, and daughters and mothers um, all throughout Wes Anderson's films. But but um, it, it seems to definitely, I think you're right. I think there are you know there are elements of that in real life with Anderson. Clearly, yeah. he, he clearly understands those dynamics. Yeah, I think there is like a kind of like a ten part podcast series called like Where's Are You Okay with Your Dad? Like in, <laughs> in in that like all of his films kind of have this like thing of people either whether it's like looking for their actual dads or like kind of looking for these surrogates for father. I figures. just want to see a freaking support group with Anderson, Noah Baumbach, and uh, Steven Spielberg is 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 the leader of it. Like he's he's running the table. <laughs> and uh, and and who else? Who else? Oh, Taika Waititi would also be a great addition. Like they all make movies about their fathers. Yeah, it, I, I'm trying to think. It's almost like a kind of like live action scene of that Wreck It Ralph kind of like uh, yeah like meeting up of all of the like uh, villains. Like uh, I just want to see Steven Spielberg clutching Wes Anderson as he weeps, saying, "It's not your fault. It's uh, not your fault, Wes." As he ad- fault. as he adjusts his cap, is like is exactly is 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 his beaten dad cap kind of like. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay, uh, yeah, and, and I guess we're gonna see the kind of uh, the gestation and the the amalgamation of uh, Steven Spielberg's daddy issues in a film where he's actually shout outs to our boys. Uh, is Paul, Paul Dano, Dano okay? okay? Yeah, portrayed by the legendary Paul Dano. Yeah, is is gonna play Steven Spielberg's dad? Like, uh, yeah, but um, back to Rushmore, and like, I think the opening scene to this film really just kind of like perfectly paints the picture of who max fisher is that kind of like yeah. we, we open with that like daydream of him mm. solving that maths equation and who hasn't had a daydream like yeah, that exactly like yeah. who hasn't imagined being way smarter or with me and my brother i think we both agree it's our, our daydreams is that we can sing mm-hmm. you know that we have a beautiful singing voice or can play an instrument but yeah with max it's that he solves this impossible equation and the way it's done as well where it's like like but it's not just the fact of like he solves the equation. It's more to the fact that he is like the bell of the ball in the school, that he has the kind yeah. of like utmost res- constantly holding a cup of tea in his hand while he's doing it and shit. And like just like he's in this amazing blazer that he wears throughout, which is like his costume, like his superhero costume. He wears it even when he's not, even after he's been kicked out of Rushmore, he wears that blazer. Like it's his superhero suit. Like like he's trying to actualize himself through this this uh this sort of 
symbol of what it is that he's meant to be, which is what he is in his fantasies, obviously, which is like some brilliant genius, the cult of the great man, mm -hmm. you know? I mean, even the way he directs his plays is obviously he's, he's had internalized into him from just like seeing how great men across history who are creators, directors, writers, uh, playwrights, uh, treat their staff and treat their actors, you know, like he's, he's basically playing a role the whole way through. Cause I mean, it, it's really cool to me um, as someone who, who, you know, clung to the fact that he was a good drawer all the way through school and, you know, often used that as a way to overcome his, you know, seeming deficits for like, you know, not having a girlfriend or not being particularly popular or whatever, like, you know, trying to overcome the bubble I had been in of being a twin brother, which meant that I was in a, like a world of my own for a long time. <laughs> Suddenly you become a teenager and it's like, oh God, I need to do something to stand out uh, uh, against this crowd. Not only to stand out not only to stand out against the other students, but to stand out, stand out against the, the person who looks exactly like me. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I'm, <laughs> um, and so, so like, you know, um, I actually relate an awful lot to Max Fisher because um, Wes Anderson is a genius at writing people who are basically like, they are the stars of their own self-written stories. Yes. You know, and that's, that's all teenagers in a nutshell. Like you might not be like Max Fisher, but everyone when they're about 15 is writing a narrative for themselves and trying to present that to the world as fact. And they think that if they present that exterior, that that will then just become true. That like, if people believe you enough, then you will become that person. And it's built on all this insecurity. And I certainly had that same thing. I didn't wear a blazer like Max Fisher does, but I wore all black and I, I emoed up. I got a goatee beard, like which would just <laughs> look like a tiny caterpillar on my chin. And it was just like, like I, I, I basically um, spent the last two years of my high school life drawing a graphic novel in, in, in recess and, and, and in lessons, even like I'd be, I'd, it would be confiscated all the time. And it was like my way of doing something of value, which was, I had to create a work, a piece, something that, 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 that had my name on it. And, um, it, it actually won a prize in the school for creativity. <laughs> and then and it was like my one act play. It was like my one act Watergate play. And it got published uh, as a graphic novel um, in bookstores, but it obviously didn't make any money because it's a graphic novel about nothing. Like it's a, it was a <laughs> 265 pages that me and only like a handful of people ever read. But, but for me at the time, it was such a huge deal because it was all I had in my mind, you know? Um, and, and what's funny is looking back on like the man I was then, like, you know, or the boy trying to be a man, you know, an awful lot of that, it, it, uh, uh, I have in common with Max, which is, is he thinks he thinks that he he's so he needs to be important so badly, mm -hmm. um, uh, so much so that he tells Bloom that his father is uh, is a, a brain surgeon. You know that he basically lies about everything. And and one thing I think is it, that I didn't notice the first time I watched the movie, but I what I, I did notice now is that there's actually a really lovely theme about everyone in the story who's young at least, is lying, even the people who aren't like Max. So it's like, um, we meet her later, like Margaret Yang, when he goes to the public school, you find out that she actually faked the results to her, you know, prize-winning uh, science project that she did because she wanted to hit some standard that was imagined. And then even the bully, um, is it Buchan? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the, the Scottish bully who keeps being totally horrible to him all the way through, it's revealed at the end that like one of the reasons why he picks on this is he just always wanted to be in one of his plays. Yeah. And you know, like uh, everyone's got like this front that they're, that they're trying to live up to and none of them can because you just can't do that. That's just like, but 
I think that's one of the reasons why it's such a believable film compared to Anderson's other work, because in all of Anderson's other movies, people are lying to themselves. Mm -hmm. People are deluded. But Max is the is one of the only Wes Anderson characters who is at the exact right age where it's 100% appropriate that he's lying. Yeah. Because everyone fucking did. You know, like that's that was me when I was a kid. I was just constantly walking around trying to sound smart, trying to sound academic. And I, I grew up in Oxford uh, and Oxford was a real great university town. And I had an awful lot of like uh, impressions of, of, of feeling like I had to be brilliant um, in order to matter. And that's just a ridiculous feeling. And the sooner you dispense with that, the, the sooner you can get on with some life of actual substance. Well, yeah, you'll think to the point of like lying. Even we get it with uh, Mason Gamble's character, Dirk Galloway. Where it's like he yeah. like you you get that thing where like he even comes to Max uh, later on in the film for like a truce, but even that yeah. is like kind of there's an underlying deception to that because it's for him to relay a message for him to go see Guggenheim in the hospital, and then we kind of mm. realise that that was all a ploy so him and Bloom would like kind of reconnect after this kind of big like breaking up of I their friendship. I find Calloway so funny. He's got some of the funniest moments in the story, despite the fact he's just a little kid. And there's just there's that moment when um uh Miss Cross, who I can't believe we haven't even mentioned yet, but but we'll get to her. But like Miss Cross and Bloom are starting their relationship and then they go for a walk. And it's just it's one of the most perfect sound cues in all of film where it just hard cuts you know, like smash cuts to Callaway seeing them and this organ music yeah. just goes <laughs> it's so it's it, it's the comedy equivalent of a jump scare it's so fucking good and every time he, Callaway's on screen he takes everything so seriously uh that it's just like it's just hilarious and his relationship with Max is, is brilliant well it's that thing is uh, the, the the thing about like uh, the Dirk Callaway character is well one he's played by mason gamble who was dennis in dennis the menace from 1993 hey, Mr. Wilson! Really? so do you remember like the, the kind of the dennis the menace with, with christopher lloyd i do remember it, it. Yeah. i watched it once it was a very weird experience yeah so like like and wes anderson said he he basically didn't want the kid who was dennis the mm. menace do you know what i mean like i think that's the kind of like uh snobbery of Wes Anderson coming through it's like, a little elitist yes. yeah I don't, I don't want that kid but he he doesn't completely escape from the trappings of his characters that's for sure <laughs> but he he is like he is fantastic and like looking through his IMDb mm. hasn't really done much else like yeah which is a, which is a, he didn't want to right? yeah, yeah which is a real shame because like yeah like the character of um is really interesting and like there's somebody else who's really interesting and they're not named uh they're not named at all in the script but there's um there is a character of like a small boy who just i'm not sure if mm. you picked up on this who crops up throughout the film he's just there he's got we he's got like big eyes yeah so he, he always looks a little miserable he's the boy who like when when bloom has that like really like it's a really great moment in the Let film like set to the um, to a kink song where uh, mm. how Bloom's throwing uh, Herman Bloom's throwing like uh, yeah. balls into the pool and then like gets up and then like like dives off the diving board yeah and he's the kid under the water and like if you know he's like the Greek chorus of the film <laughs> yeah that little boy kind of like come, like pops up all the way through and like his kind of facial expressions almost like tell you like oh like 
He's always like listening in to everything that's Isn't going on. Isn't he in the like? It, he's in the party after the show at the very end, next to all the nudie girl pictures that are just like really inappropriately put up in the set dressing it to make it look like Vietnam. <laughs> he looks like he's so traumatized. He's everywhere. There's even a moment when like the police turn up to Bloom's like door and are asking mm. for like yeah. the description. That kid's just Oval there. face. That that yeah. That kid's just on the doorstep as well. And he's, he's just there. You don't know his relationship to anybody. He could be in Mrs. Cross's class. Maybe I don't think so. He's just there. He's just a, a hanger on. Yeah, yeah. And it's yeah, very interesting. I, 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 I find, I, I find that really fascinating. But obviously, yeah. Once we get that kind of like, when Max snaps out of that um, daydream, and we get that introduction from Bloom telling that kind of, he's gone off script basically of what he'd written. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it perfectly plays into what you were saying earlier, where it's like he is a made man because he's kind of like giving this speech, which is all about like the privilege of these kids and yes. like you should keep the rich ones in your in your crosshairs. Like they're the, take them down. Take them down. And um, a, a great bit of trivia is that is based on an actual speech that Owen and Luke Wilson's father like gave and like the the character of bloom like a lot mm. of a lot of like the kind of lines that he says i think there's a line later on in the film where he's like how did i end up with like boys like you yeah is is directly lifted from richard wilson i think his name is like, that's so interesting well i mean like that touches on something i'm really glad you brought up which is that you know, obviously Wes Anderson gets an awful lot of press for this film, but, you know, it's easy to forget that the, the script was co-written by Owen Wilson, mm -hmm. you know, that, that uh, Owen Wilson, you know, despite also being a very likable star, you know, has a very good talent. And, you know, the, the script for the Royal Tenenbaums is, is just as amazing. And, you know, like these guys um, collaborated and there must be an awful lot of Owen Wilson's life in this story. Uh, as well as just Anderson, who obviously brings all of the the visual pizzazz and an awful lot of the personality, but you know, it's it's nothing without that that combination of the two. Well, yeah, you can kind of see it in that like that the, there's that frustrated dad who like for obviously like Wes Anderson aesthetic's sake, he's just given him mm. twin sons. Whereas like mm. Owen Wilson's real life would have been three boys because there's the the other brother yeah. as well. But it's like yeah, you very much get that sense of like. They're drawing upon that. I think it's very much like drawn upon Wes Anderson and Owen Wilton's childhoods. It's like the yeah. the film is even filmed at St John's, which is Wes Anderson's old school, because apparently they were looking like globally. They were looking in uh, America, Canada, and the UK for schools essentially they could film at. And Wes Anderson's yeah. mum said to him, like, "Well, why don't you?" Why don't you go to your old school? It would be perfect for this story you're telling. Which, even that point tells you how kind of like this is personal. Do you know what I mean? You can and you can very much like see Wes Anderson's mentioned. I think he's on this Charlie Rose interview that he used to put on plays at school and even tried to mount a uh, a version of Star Wars. So like very much with the same ambition as Max Fisher, where he's trying to like do these kind of like cinematic yeah, I'm, sure if he, I'm sure if he could have you know put pyrotechnics all over the stage he would have right yeah 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 or it's like i'm sure if he if he could have he would have done serpico as well like <laughs> exactly <laughs> um so shall we quickly talk about so we get this amazing like kind of introduction like 
and there's great storytelling in this film that you kind of get to know Max through that amazing opening with the uh, daydream, and then that kind of, um, I think it's Bloom's talking to Guggenheim about Max, and he says like, mm. like "Oh, who is it?" He's like, "He's the worst student we've ever had," and then we get mm. that like montage of all the things that Max does. Yeah, the things he does to make up for the fact that he's a terrible student. So I've got them listed here. So he's the Yankee Review Publisher, French Club President, UN Model, Russia, Stamp and Coin Club Vice President, Debate Team Captain, Lacrosse Team Manager, Calligraphy Club President, Astronomy Club Founder, Fencing Team Captain, Track and Field, JV Decathlon, Second Choral Choir Master, Bombardment Society Founder, Kung Fu Club Yellow Belt, <laughs> Trap and Skeet Club founder, Rushmore Beekeepers president, Yankee Racers founder, Max Fisher's players director, and the Piper Cub Club 4.5 hours logged. I think the saddest shot of that whole montage is the, tr- the, the running track, and it's just him running. He's just completely alone. <laughs> There's no one else on his team. That just makes me so sad for him. I'd, I'd, it's it, it's a great montage. It's it, 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 it's it, it's probably one of the most iconic shots in the movie is him in the in the the, the car yeah. with, the, with the big goggles. Apparently, that's modelled on a classic photograph. Um, but it's like yeah, it, it sets up everything. I mean, those two sequences do an awful lot to tell you what Max Fisher is trying to be. Mm-hmm. That like like the, the whole first half of the movie is about deconstructing. The man that he wants to be, and then the, you know the last half is about him becoming the person he actually is. He then finds out that like obviously he's got to be expelled, and mm. then finds that book that is like like he, he finds out like who checked in this he, book. Yeah, he sees the an inscription, right? An inscription that, that she wrote in the margins of of a, like a Jacques Cousteau book. That's obviously thinking about like her husband, I guess, who drowned, and it's like it leads him to her and. That's when we meet Olivia Williams. Who is fantastic for, for a character who is basically just like the object of affection for, for, yes. for two characters. She does really well with what she's got, essentially. Do you know what I mean? Like, I 100% agree. Uh, one of the things I was so struck by in this film, on this rewatch, was just how hard of, of a line she has to walk the whole way through the film because she basically has i mean she's basically a conglomeration of what must have been the first love of both owen wilson and wes anderson and a stand-in for every member of the audience's first crush as well and so that's a massive massive like cipher essentially that that she has to be whilst also being a real character mm-hmm. and she has to to walk this line of of seeming like she has to walk the line of clearly seeing something in Max, clearly liking him, clearly caring for him. And actually, you know, they have some kind of chemistry that is deep and personal. You know, you, you see it in her face a lot of the time that she sees things in him that remind him of her late husband. But at the same time, she has to do it in a way that is never unseemly and, and in a way that feels like she's always being appropriate. And and, and so one of my big fears when I was going to rewatch the movie was like, oh God, I really hope this movie actually isn't like a movie that I thought was, was, was brilliant at the time, but actually, you know, did the disservice to the female characters. And I was very relieved when I saw some of like uh, uh, Williams's scenes, you know, like 
in the context of now being older and wiser, I was like, holy shit, she knows exactly how to deal with this little squirt. Like she basically like, she shuts him down really early when she notices that he's interested. She says all the right things. She's super gentle with him. And then when he starts pushing his luck, she really shuts him down in firm ways that are still kind. And it's like, it's like I wish, you know, that that every person who 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 people get infatuated with reacted like as 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 gracefully as she does. But but like th th I think it, it it culminates in one of the most important sequences, which is just brutal, which is the scene midway through the film after he's been expelled and after he's tried to get her expelled and she's resigned because of the pressure of him like basically hounding her and he tries to kiss her mm -hmm. which is like oh my god what a problematic thing to do you know like what a what what a dicey thing to do and the movie goes there and it's perfect because she literally like throws him across the room into some boxes and then calls him on all of his bullshit because basically, like, when you think about infatuation, like I say earlier, that we're, we're all the writers of our, of our own narratives when we're young, you know, even when we're adults, but maybe with a bit more perspective. And, and Max is always hilariously borrowing from films and plays and books and TV that he knows. Mm -hmm. So it's like when he first meets her, he lights her cigarette because it must have been something he sees people do in plays, you know. He, he sees, you know, urbane, witty, charming people do that. So that's what he does. And then, um, you know, uh, <laughs> you, you get this feeling that Max smokes all the way through, but you get the feeling Max doesn't even like cigarettes, but it's just something he thinks he has to do to be sophisticated. And then even when he goes to war with Bloom, when he finds out Bloom is now dating um, uh, Miss Cross, like he, he, he shows up in the back of his car in shadow because that's what would happen in a noir. Like he's, and, and, and everything he says is like written in his own head for you. You can tell that he rehearsed everything he was going to say. Yes. You can tell that he's dramatized every single detail of his suffering because, because that's the way he feels he has control over it. And, and, and it, 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 it's, it's hilarious, but it's also like cringe-worthingly embarrassing because it, it made me think about times when I've dramatized things in my head when I was a kid. Because when you fall in love, everything is hyperbolic and, and, and you start to sort of like cast yourself as the victim. And then when he tries to kiss her, it's hilarious because it basically proves the, 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 the saddest thing about having a crush when you're young, which is that in your mind, you plan everything, you write everything, mm -hmm. including what the other person is going to do in your head yeah. of like, here's how I'm going to get it. And then I'm going to kiss her. And then the funniest thing is that he has nothing after that point in his head. He has no idea what to do once he tries and, and fails. Like the moment she literally says, oh, fuck, no, get away from me. He's completely blindsided. And it just, it, it just brings home how completely unprepared he is for life. Mm -hmm. And then she basically says, what do you think is going to happen if we did get them, do you think we're going to have sex? Like, and, and, and he says, well, that's kind of like a, 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 a crude way to put it. And she said, well, not if, not if you've ever fucked it isn't. And like, she just like says, you know, flat out, you're a boy. She puts him in his place. And, <laughs> and, and clearly he's just terrified by this because it's like, it's like when you're a kid and a teenager and you fall in love with people, you fall in love at them. And it's like the Joker, like the dog chasing cars, like he wouldn't know what to do with her if he caught her. Yeah. And so, so that scene is so brilliant and so, 
so uh, fantastic at like walking that really dicey line. And I think a lot of it is down to Williams because she takes that character that could just be, like you say, the vessel for everyone's desires. And she makes a real character out of it. And even towards the end when, you know, like there's this whole ridiculous plot line of Max and then Bloom creating an aquarium for her, you know, um, out of love, like to prove their, their devotion to her. And she, you know, says in like the, the, the simplest, calmest way, like, you know, I never actually asked anyone to build me an aquarium. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like you realize that your infatuation with me is entirely to do with you. It's not really to do with me, you know? And yeah, it's a shame because you can tell that she really does care for Max, you know? What's really interesting about that as well is you kind of like, at that point, you've realized like how kind of Bloom, Bloom almost looks up to Max as well. Like in the fact yeah. that like they are almost equals in this film, whereas like one of them is on like the precipice of adulthood, and one of them is kind of like been round the block a few times and just kind of wants to be back at the stage that Max is. And I think like yeah. Owen Wilson says it on the commentary that when that that kind of scene on the diving board is Bill Murray's characters, um once in a lifetime moment that kind of like this is not my beautiful house this is not my beautiful yeah. wife like yeah. it's like he's kind of realizing like what the fuck am i doing here like clearly my wife doesn't love me like yeah. she's like flirting with the tennis coach and like mm. his kids his kids fucking hate him like and he doesn't he doesn't relate to them in any way like the reason he likes max so much is that that's what he thinks his child who was born into privilege that he is now he's a millionaire he's 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 had children born into privilege and therefore they have none of the get up and go that he had when he was young so max actually fits that mold so much better so he just sees these these neanderthals that he's raised that he's sired just living up in this life of utter privilege and obliviousness you know then you know clearly cruel and bullyish and and i, I believe bill murray himself disliked the actors of, of the two boys who played yeah. his sons so a lot of his microaggressions or overt <laughs> aggressions towards them are, are just Bill Murray being like, I fucking hate these guys. But um, this is a good opportunity to talk about Bill Murray because this is yeah. this was the first movie of his I watched um, that put him back on the map mm -hmm. for me after like, obviously he's in Ghostbusters, he's this, he's that. And it's like, you know, Groundhog Day. But this is probably, I looked back at his IMDb and it's like, this is before Lost in Translation before he works with another Coppola, of course, mm -hmm. you know, he's, he's got, he's got Coppola connections uh, abound, but it's like, this is like the beginning of the Merasance. Yes. You know, <laughs> his, his first big role in an indie that set him apart from being like, Oh, he's a washed up guy. Cause like, what had he done, you know, the year before or so? Like what wild things? Like he's the best thing in wild things. That's yeah. the best you could say yeah. about him in, in exactly. Like it's like, but this is the beginning of him re-legitimizing himself. Yeah. The nineties is kind of got that weird thing where he's saying like, what about Bob? He's doing that film with the elephant in it. He's doing that osmosis Jones and stuff like that. Yeah. But like he really like took to the script of this. And there's this great anecdote that he tells about like, he was he read the script and he was like, I, I love it. And they're like, Oh yeah, we'll send you bottle rocket. And then like he's like, Yeah, yeah, send it to me. Fat, like send him over a copy of Bottle Rocket. Then he speaks to Wes. He's like, oh, I wanna do I wanna do the film. And he's like, I, I wanna do it. Like I'll, I'll even take it, I'll even take no paycheck for this film. Like that's yeah, how much Bill that's amazing. Bill Murray lo like loved. And wasn't Wes Anderson like really reverent the first time they were filming together? Like he didn't he almost like was afraid 
to direct him because he looms so large in his estimation. Obviously, there's a little bit of the Max Fisher hero worshipping from Wes Anderson towards Bill Murray. Yeah, and well, there's that thing as well that I think like Bill Murray, like as much as he's kind of seen as this like, I don't know, almost like jovial uncle of like cinema Mm. and like you hear all these great stories about him. Like he does have a mean streak to him and there are these kind of Hollywood stories of him like not liking what people are doing and kind of like, no, like I think, yeah, he's like fr- fr- he threw someone in a lake in like, do you know what I mean? Whilst filming and stuff. Yeah, like that. I mean, like Bill Murray has darkness in him, and that is obviously a vein that Anderson taps over and over again in his movies with with Murray, which is that Murray. This is you know not only is it the beginning of the of the Murraysons, it's the beginning of Bill Murray as the sad sack, the sad clown, because he was just a clown before. He really wasn't. He was you know at best in Groundhog Day, he was like a Scrooge and then in Scrooge he was Scrooge for real but like he was like a guy who was cynical and 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 sort of like abrasive whereas once he hits this sort of middle age period suddenly he becomes this character his face is etched with regret you know there's that amazing sequence which is just followed on from probably my favorite moment in the whole film which is uh the kite flying scene but like the kite flying scene has that incredible needle drop of you know you asked uh on, online the other day what's the best needle drop in the movie for me personally there's like every i actually just rebought the soundtrack because it's like it's so good yeah. i just found myself listening to it all day yesterday but the best needle drop for me is the the song that introduced me to cat stevens as a teenager which was um the wind you know yeah. the, i listen to the wind to the wind of my soul it's such a simple song yeah. it's only like two verses long but it's so beautiful so perfect for that moment of Max finally reawakening after having lost all sense of his identity, you know, when he starts listing names for the Kite Flying Society. Mm-hmm. But then it, it goes from this incredible moment of Max having an epiphany to a hard cut to Murray's face. Murray just standing on the side of the road outside the barbershop. A car goes by and, and spritzes him with, with like dirty water and he doesn't even care. He doesn't even notice almost. His, he looks utterly bereft. And so this was like the first time I sat up and took Murray seriously as someone who could do really dramatic acting because, you know, Rushmore is ostensibly a comedy, but there's a great deal of tragedy to Bill Murray's character. Like, just he looks so lost in that moment. He's like, it's one of the things I'm saying, like, it's kind of like knock-on effect to Wes Anderson's, like, uh, next films. He's like, he's almost like a prototype for a royal Mm. Tenenbaum. Like you've got this guy yeah. who's kind of estranged from his family, living in a hotel. Who like mm. at, at the beginning of the Royal Tenenbaums is how we meet Gene Hackman's character. And yeah. but yeah, like, yeah. but like he's got a lot more heart to him, whereas like uh, Royal Tenenbaum yeah, is I mean, very much like kind of. I still, yeah, I, I, conniving I still feel mean. like this is his best Anderson movie. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like. Not that he's bad in the other Anderson movies, but he becomes a bit more like part of the wallpaper in other Anderson movies because he's just Bill Murray being another Bill Murray. Mm-hmm. Like it's like he he essays the sad sack now over and over again in Wes Anderson's movies. You know, um, I mean, I think you know, Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou, he gets to take set stage, of course, but uh, Life Aquatic is actually probably lower down on the list for me of Wes Anderson movies because it's so stylized. Mm-hmm. It was like it was the first time Wes Anderson went full tilt into his own style. But but um, Murray often plays like a, a loser, like who's going to go cut down a tree out of frustration in yeah. you know <laughs> in Moonrise Kingdom. Whereas this, he has so much more to play with as Bloom. He he's he's a little bit closer to to past Bill Murray. He's like right on the handoff 
between those two sides of himself. So he still has a bit of edge to him in this, like that that incredible montage um, of of them trying to sabotage each other after yeah. Max puts bees into his hotel room, and you just see this moment where Murray sees the bees being funneled into the room, and he. He, it's so good because he smiles at it almost like he's impressed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then his face hardens back into malevolence. And it's such a great, like, a nemesis moment that you just wouldn't see any other Bill Murray from any other of Anderson's movies doing. But then you get that, like... Maybe the badger. Yeah, you get that <laughs> You get that great, like, moment later on where they've kind of, like, reconciled their differences after the, after the moment you talk about where he's kind of, like, uh, all disheveled and that. And what's really interesting yeah. that is he's wearing, like, the exact same outfit as when we saw him last in the ho- in, in the yeah. um, hospital, where he's like, it's, mm-hmm. I think now it's like, yeah, kind of when you Google Rushmore, it's one of the first images that popped up of those two in the lift. You've got Bill Murray mm-hmm. with two cigarettes in his mouth. And he's yeah. just those beautiful little details of kind of like how, I don't know, how disheveled and how off the rails his life has got. Like he's hiding bottle, like miniature bottles of booze underneath blankets in a hospital yeah and you could tell a lot of it is like murray improvising as well like he's such a gifted improviser like there's that bit where he realizes miss cross isn't coming to the groundbreaking of the aquarium that he spent eight million dollars on and he's just i gotta get out of here and he walks through the marching band and he just says scatter 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 and you i I, it feels like a murray ad lib to me like doesn't it just feels like something he would say well one of the amazing things about bill murray he said like a lot of the time when he reads scripts he reads them under the the guise of like what do i need to do to make this character better almost do you mean like and he said there's there's only like a few scripts in his career i think it's um groundhog perhaps he's like on the other side of the spectrum to nicholas cage whereas nicholas cage is like is it a script i'll do it yeah, well, no, no, he, yeah, he's like kind of like he looks at the script and he's like, yeah, the the story's good, or it's like, what kind of like, what can I basically do to write, yeah. like, what have I got to write to make this like better? Whereas, like, I think the reason he kind of took Rushmore was he just saw the script and he went, I've hardly got to do anything with this because it's. Do you know what? It must be a mark of considerable pride to be a director who manages to land Murray for a role. Like it must be like catching the white whale. You know what I mean? It's like it's like it's like Wes Anderson, Sofia Coppola, and the guy who did Garfield. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Maybe he doesn't get invited to the to the party. Yeah, but, they they yeah. they've all bagged the Jaguar shark. That is exactly. Bill Murray. The Jaguar shark. <laughs> That's so good. Um. Uh, I mean, like it it. it it must be amazing to know that's one of your players. You know what I mean? That you could just play him like a like a baseball card almost yeah. whenever you need him. Yeah, he's like the he's like the Michael Caine for a Nolan movie. <laughs> one of the things I wanted to talk about in this film, David, was the fact that like watching it now, Max Fisher can like what well, kind of is like an unlikable character, right? Like he very much like portrays yeah. himself to be that way, and it's like. It's a bold move for a film, especially like a second director. Like, I guess it's Wes Anderson's yeah. like actual title. Do you know what I mean? He's kind of like caught the interest yeah. of a lot of like filmmakers, especially. I know that it was Bottle Rocket that made Michael Bay cast Owen Wilson in yeah. Armageddon and stuff like that. So, like, it got like, yeah, this is the first time he can kind of really go. Well, with a bit more of a budget, this is what I can do. And then he kind of like gives yeah. us, well, here's this our lead character is wholly 
unlikable for most is of the, the film. Is the antagonist for most of, yeah. of, of his own story. Yeah, I mean, like, I guess that's where casting becomes so important because it is entirely down to the charm of Jason Schwartzman that we don't hate Max, that, like, that even though we can see that he is objectively in the wrong for most of the film, we understand why he's doing it because he makes it so crystal clear on his face that he's just a boy who's scared and wants to prove himself and, and has this idea of himself that he has to live up to. Um, but you hit upon something that I, I knew I was going to talk about and that I was really excited to talk about, but, but it, 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 it really cuts deep to why I feel a lot of connection to this film, which is that one of my trepidations about revisiting it was that like you know when you watch movies when you were young and then and then you realize that like essentially um there were all of these messages that you received through media through films through television uh these pernicious messages that sort of fed what has now become incel culture mm -hmm. you know max fisher um displays a lot of you know for want of a better phrase like incel like uh mindsets and, and behaviors because he is the the embodiment of of a, of a of a white cisgendered man going through his first crush in a world where obviously all of his heroes are great men, you know, they're they're directors, they're auteurs, um, and and women are not, you know, presented to you as as people, but as objects of desire, uh, as 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 a role that you've cast them in. And um, and it's kind of hilarious because he goes through the movie, even um, even Luke Wilson's cameo as uh, her surgeon friend, uh, her like when he shows up in the OR scrubs and, and ends up going to that incredibly oh. cringeworthy dinner with them where Max gets drunk. It's like Max's animosity to him is because, for want of a better phrase, Luke Wilson's playing in Max's mind a Chad. You know, he's he's one of those handsome men who who has done nothing to him but like in max's mind it's like hey i'm the romantic tortured victim here i love this woman and she's here with this man this man doesn't deserve her why do all the handsome assholes get to be with women and i don't like like you know like and, and i'm alone and it's it's a mindset that is really really pernicious and it's obviously fed into a very toxic um uh, sphere now that the internet has become rife you know, now that we are all connected and so bad ideas can go and find other bad ideas. Um, so Max Fisher, when I was thinking about it, I was like, it's, it's interesting we mentioned our friends at the, is Paul Dano okay? Because um, uh, their other podcast, uh, Sudden Double Deep with Jeanette, um, uh, recently they did an episode where they talked about Falling Down, which is another one of my favorite movies from when I was a teenager which is obviously Michael Douglas has one really bad day, snaps and goes on this killing spree and he's whining and complaining all the way through and, and he's on, a, on, on like a, a, an inexorable mission to go and, you know, even if he doesn't fully realize it, to go murder his, his ex-wife, you know, and daughter and, and Robert Duvall has to stop him. And that movie became like hailed as like, almost like, hey, it's a white guy finally saying it like it is, yeah. you know what I mean? Like a lot of people love that movie for the wrong reasons. And Jeanette was, you know, very rightfully pointing out, you know, the ways in which that character is not a hero and he is a villain, you know, because he is, he's, he's, he's being xenophobic, he's being racist and he's being, you know, you know, sexist because he's, he's basically going to go, you know, he was abusive to his wife and he was abusive to his mother and he's going to go kill them. And, and that was a movie that when I was young, I used to love Michael Douglas's character because Michael Douglas's character had a lot of rage in him and me as a teenager, just feeling angry at the world, I had a bit of rage in me too. But but what was interesting about it was that, you know, 
I still think Falling Down is a great movie because in that movie, Michael Douglas acknowledges at the end that he's the bad guy. There's this moment where he says, I'm the bad guy? How'd that happen? You know, like, it's a movie that 100% knows that this guy is the antagonist, not the protagonist. And, and, and he's the villain of his own story. He just doesn't know it. And, you know, you can actually definitely, you know, validly argue that there are pernicious elements to that film. Mm-hmm. You know, some people take the exact wrong message out of it. But, um, but I couldn't help but think about it when I was thinking about Rushmore. Because Rushmore is like, Max Fisher is like, is like the totally harmless version of the character from Falling Down. He's like, everyone goes through this period, if you're a, if you're a boy, you know, um, who, who's, who's lonely or sensitive, um, who's not popular, you're going to go through moments where you think, why do other people, you know, uh, get to be with someone and not me? Or, or what is wrong with me? And, and why won't this woman that I have decided I'm in love with, you know, and, and I've decided that she must love me, like, why doesn't she do that? And, and so Max goes through all of these stages of what a lot of people go through. And it's, it's, it's interesting to me because when I watched it, I was like, God, Max, don't let me down, mm-hmm. you know, in, in the rewatch. And I realized that this movie, it, it, it's perfect because unlike a lot of other messaging sort of movies, which, 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 you know, tell men or boys how to be, this movie 100% understands that Max is ridiculous. Yes. And, and, um, and, and, uh, and Jason Schwartzman knows that his character is ridiculous. He has empathy for him, but it's never, ever, ever unclear that Max is being an absolute idiot. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and that's why it's so important that Miss Cross shuts him down in the way that she does and remains in integrity and literally, like, you know, calls him on all of it. Because um, it's, it's a story about someone going right to the edge of what everyone goes to, but not, you know, having to become toxic or horrible. You know, like like he he basically alienates everyone around him all the way through the film. He 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 tries to deceive Miss Cross into thinking that he's been hit by a car. Yeah. To to try to find a way to romantically <laughs> entangle with her. Yeah, and then like, it, it, he does a lot of insidious things. Um, and and a lot of his animosity is because he he's in love at her and she's not living up to the version of her that he's created in his head. I, f- I think that scene and plays that's really it, problematic. That scene yeah. plays it really clever as well by letting the audience know that like Max is making it up as well. It's like because he sneaks in like when he comes through the window, he sneaks in that like tape of like he just immediately puts a tape in the tape player for some romantic music. Yeah. It's like everything he does is a play. Everything he does is something he's written. And that is not a million miles away from what, you know, kids do. And that's certainly something that I that I did when I was a kid. When I when I had my first crush, I was I, I fell absolutely hard and, and I was hyperbolic about it. Because when you first fall in love, it's like no one has ever been in love before. Yeah. Right? You feel like you invented love. You know what I mean? You become this obsessive egotist about how much you love somebody. And that person oftentimes is completely oblivious. To the fact that you feel this way, yeah, you know, especially if you're a shy, insular little boy, and and an awful lot of my experience chimes with what happened with Max, right down to like some things that I deeply cringe at when I think back to my own life. Like, I I feel a lot of regret about the ways in which I uh, was infatuated with people who had done nothing uh, to me; they'd done nothing wrong; they were perfectly sweet to me, and yet I, you know basically made them my tormentor 
completely against their consent, you know? Well, and, and, and I never acted in a way that was horrible. Uh, like like most of, most of it was entirely inside my own head, but I acted out scenarios in my mind of, oh, you know, maybe she would appreciate me if I saved her life or if I, yeah. if, if I endured torture for her, then she would see. And it's like, it's, it's, it's as ridiculous as Mike pretending to be, uh, uh, as Max pretending to be hit by a car. Cause it's like, in what scenario are you going to get to be a hero? Like, unless you engineered it yourself, you'd be insane. Like it's insane. But that's because when you're a teenager and you're, and you think you're in love, you are a bit insane. Well, and so this movie really, really uh, takes that and, and, un and unpacks it and demystifies it and says, look, this is all silly. Well, I, this is all insane. I think the film perfectly like lays it out by giving us that um, daydream at the beginning because yeah. a lot of the kind of scenarios she's just listed there of that thing of like becoming the hero and like having all these like grand plans for like how mm. you're going to win over your love are the types of things you would have like daydreamed whether it's like on the bus or at school like when you have that first crush like there's many a times I'm, I'm sure ways in which people will see your value yeah and people will relate to this or that thing of like you might see someone you fancy on the train and then your, mm. your whole journey you kind of especially like when you're like yeah like for me I was quite a sensitive teenager as well like I remember I used to get the train to college and you'd see someone like mm. it was perfectly innocent you'd kind of see them and be like oh they're, they're, they're very pretty and then you would kind of just have this like weird daydream of like how things would mm. plan out and then like this almost like life together and it's like this film almost like plays out those like daydreams but then shows you like yeah. how that quickly turns into a nightmare because as you said earlier well, it, yeah that like it proves that it's all built on a fallacy yeah. that, that like the fallacy being that they should acquiesce to your external feeling about what they should do and be that like they, that you have some ownership over them because you feel love for them you know love is not ownership what you know love is partnership and, and when you're young, you don't know how to be in love with someone. You can only be in love at them. Yes. You know, in most, in most cases, obviously, some people are lucky and, and they meet their high school sweetheart <laughs> and get married. But, like, that's not a lot of people's experiences. Like, there's a lot. Of, um, I, I would always describe that whenever I, was in, whenever I was in the common room of school, in high school, imagine that you could take, like, a red string, uh, like a gunshot, like, a, like in a crime mm -hmm. scene, and you could connect one person's eyes to the person they were interested in. None of those strings would ever intersect. Yes. There'd be like two couples who were like the the sweethearts of the whole school, who were like the benefit of the school, and then you would have everyone else was just a tangle of red string, yeah. all looking at someone else. And it's all it's just a recipe for tragedy. But when you're a boy, and society has has basically shoved all of these ideas of like to be sexual is to have attained something, to 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 have had sex is to have accomplished something. You know, I mean, no wonder women have developed such uh, a, a, a sort of like a, a fear of, of, of men's interest, you know, mm -hmm. like, you know, I mean, because obviously so much of it is untoward because by the sheer nature that it's built on that fallacy that, that we're somehow entitled to what we want just because we have decided that we want it. And it's not real, mm -hmm. you know, and, and Max, you're right, the, uh, Max's paper house, you know, crumbles you know, his paper dream house with, with, with Miss Cross, you know, it, 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 it's completely ripped to shreds. And then he has to start from the foundation upwards again and be who he really is. To reiterate something you said earlier, that like your kind of daydreams only go so far. And as Max, like when he gets like rebuked by Miss Cross, it's like 
his 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 daydream's not written any further past that point and it's yeah. like that is the thing like you learn that lesson quite hard that i think i think that dinner scene is the like the real first moment like where you're like oh god i like your nurse's uniform guy these are or scrubs oh are they Well, they're totally inappropriate for the occasion. Well, I didn't know we were going to dinner. That's because you weren't invited. Take it easy, Max. You want to grab him by his, like, lapels of his jacket and shake him. And it's like that thing. And I think that's where, like, watching this film older, where I've, like, mm. gone beyond the point of, like, relating to Max, where I am now one of, uh, like, I am Owen Wilson. I obviously meant to say Luke Wilson. Or I am Mr. Bloom at that table, kind of going like, yeah. I'm probably more Mr. Bloom because I probably would do something dumb, like give a fuck, like take a shot. Like, <laughs> I would get I would get someone a whiskey and soda without realising the consequences. <laughs> yeah, or just that thing of like, I don't know. I, I, but I think that plays into like my kind of like that like father issue so it's like oh yeah i want to take a kid under my wing and i guess it's that thing yeah. like yeah like that's what that's what bloom is trying to do but like as the film progresses we realize that it's, it's not that at all that they are very much from like two sides of the same coin and miss mm. cross says it perfectly where it's like you two deserve each other and it's like you're both little children yeah 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 they they are they are both children wanting to be men and it's like yeah. the fact is that herman bloom is a man but it's like that thing of almost like i don't know you could only imagine that his life is like yeah he might have married his childhood sweetheart and then before he knows it he's he's made his millions and then he's like do you know what I mean? 30 years have gone down the well, line. I mean, yeah, it, it's one of the, the, the lovely things about the fact that the final needle drop of the movie is uh, I wish that I knew what I knew now when I was younger, you know? that I mean, the, the whole movie is just that, sum, you know, th that summation that basically, you know, uh, you can't learn these lessons any other way but the painful way. You know what I mean? You can't just be wise immediately. Otherwise, Max would just be wise because he wants to be wise. You know, you can't be a good artist just because you decide I'm going to make a hit play. You know, you can't just end up with the woman you're supposed to end up with because you've decided, you know, that's what you're going to do without without actually earning it. Um, and, and you're right, like Max realizes he basically, he basically just realizes the hard way that he can't write his love. <laughs> and, and, and there's a lovely intertextuality to that with the fact that Wes Anderson, you said how interesting it is that Wes Anderson would make a story about an unlikable character. Think about the power that Wes Anderson and Owen Wilson had to write a story any way they would want it. They could have written Max's fantasy out in a very idealized way. And so it shows their, their quality that they decided to use the entire film to, to, to harpoon that notion and actually take you know, some responsibility for themselves by saying, hey, look, when we're young, we're fucking idiots, yeah. you know? And, and, and here's how. <laughs> what's like beautiful in this film is the way that like, and it is, it is this running theme throughout Wes Anderson films where it's, it's people searching for family. And in this case, it's like, it's not warranted because we realise that Max has a beautiful father at home who will like oh, yeah. do anything for him. Like, and we see that like so supportive. really early on where he kind of gets 37 in a test and he changes it to yeah. an 87. And he's just kind of like, 
And at one of the moments that like really like breaks my heart is so obviously, yeah, we have that kind of whole thing play out where Max and Bloom are, are kind of going toe to toe and like mm. seeking vengeance on each other. And Max cuts his brakes and then, yeah. and then gets arrested. And then he kind of like takes up this life of becoming a barber. And yeah. his dad says to him something to the effect of like, you know what? I, I, I've always enjoyed barbering. It's something I'm good at, but I always, always, always thought you'd, you'd do something more. You always wanted to be like a senator or, or something. Mm, a diplomat. Yeah, yeah. And, and he just says, pipe dreams, dad. I'm a barber's son. And yeah. that is like, that is absolutely heartbreaking because it's like, yeah. it's like that thing of like, Max has got this image that if you're not from good stock, you shouldn't become mm. good stock. And it's like, then, yeah. then there's that thing that obviously you've got the counterpoint to that where you've got Bloom, who obviously, as you said earlier, is a self-made man. And it's like, mm. it's, it's all this kind of tapestry of Max learning these lessons of how, yeah. like, and it's like, it's frustrating watching this, like somewhat uh, uh, being that much older. Because like, when, when you get the introduction of uh, Margaret Yang, you're like, you mm. have got like, you have got the perfect girl for you. The perfect woman. Yeah. <laughs> the perfect girl for Max. The perfect high school romance for Max. It's right. Clearly interested in him. Seems as, you know, on his level of, of intellect. You know, she seems precocious too. And, and like, yeah, you're right. Like, what are you doing? What's the matter with you, mate? Yeah. Um, but but it, it, it's so funny because, like, um, I love what you said about the dad. The dad is so be beautifully sketched. It's it's a kind of character that doesn't show up a lot in other Wes Anderson movies. Like you know, it's almost like Wes Anderson movies become populated entirely by Max Fishers. You know, or bad, um, bad, whereas, bad dads. It's like yeah, bad dads. Like and and so so like the dad is 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 this really interesting character, and you can tell that there's a huge amount of it is is Max's relationship to his mother, who's gone, who saw something brilliant in him and got him into Rushmore. What's really interesting about the movie is that. The movie's called Rushmore, and yet he's only in Rushmore for the first third of the movie. Mm -hmm. Like Rushmore, he gets expelled, or like like towards the towards basically the beginning of the second act. Well, yeah, and it... and so the Rushmore itself hangs over the rest of the movie. It's it's his albatross around his neck because you know how like you know him and Bloom bond over this idea that you should do what you love for the rest of your life and. And when Bloom is trying to explain his feelings for Miss Cross, he says, she's my Rushmore. You know, the Rushmore is this ideal of like this thing that you want to commit yourself to. And Max is obsessed with it so much so that he still wears the uniform when he's in public school and when he's in regular life. And, and so this reminds me of something that happened when I went back to Oxford a couple of years ago. Because I, you know, I mentioned that like, you know, when I was in school, I, I tried to be you know, academic. Um, um, I, I, I fancied myself to be, uh, you know, a, a good writer. I wanted to be a director. I made a short film when I was in school, you know, with a bunch of my friends. Like, I did a bunch of scrappy things to try to prove myself. Um, but actually, like, I wasn't very good at, um, at science, maths. Me and my brother went to America when we were kids. And, um, and so we missed our times tables because the education systems are structured differently. <laughs> so we came back and we're just stupid in math. We just had no idea how to do it. And we had to go to a tutor to just like scrounge our, I think it was a C eventually in our GCSEs. Like, and science wasn't that great. And basically the only thing I could do was writing, was English, was media studies, art, and, and basically all of the subjects that didn't require an empirically correct answer. 
you know, and the, and, and I was good at history because history was just stories. And so, so um, I went through high school, like basically wearing the fact that I was a writer on my sleeve and, and trying to do everything I could to be that. And then I went to film school instead of going to Oxford, when I, maybe I could have gotten an English literature course in Oxford because I, I did well in those subjects. But, um, but uh, I decided to go to film school, a practical film school. Um, uh, where we got to handle 60 millimeter film because like my dream was I'm going to become a filmmaker. I'm going to go to the National Film and Television School for my master's and that's going to be my thing. I'm going to become Max Fisher, essentially. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm going to be Max Fisher and I'm going to have the David Trumbull players. You know what I mean? Um, and I, like, I don't think I ever yelled at someone, don't fuck with my play, but I probably was close at some <laughs> point, I'm sure. Um, um, <laughs> got a fucking punch in the nose, I'm sure. But um, the... the uh, the story of my life didn't go that way because that's just not how life is. You can't structure it that way. I, I left film school and because I majored in directing and gotten a grad film, I didn't have any actual skills when I left uni. Like I, did, I wasn't an editor. I didn't know how to edit. I didn't know how, I wasn't in the, in, in the camera crew. I had no actual transferable skills to get a job in the industry. So I actually, you know, drifted and, and, and treaded water for most of my 20s realizing that I put all of my of my eggs into this one basket of I'm going to become a filmmaker I'm going to become a great filmmaker and actually had not given myself any way of becoming one um and so I I, I lent on uh, my other abilities and I, I I did illustration I was a political cartoonist and for a long time I felt like film was like had become a pipe dream you know like not like I'm a barber's son but like you know what maybe yeah. this isn't the right path for me and it wasn't until I decided to go towards something else that meant something to me that I actually found the people, my tribe, um, in animation. And, and animation is, is, is something that, that, that incorporated a skill that I actually did have, which was writing and, and, and art and drawing and draftsmanship, but also incorporated everything I knew about filmmaking, like, you know, shot language, editing, and all these things that I didn't have a discipline in, but understood because yeah. I'd, I, I'd, you know, grown up on film. And so weirdly, I ended up getting to the, the life of actually being a filmmaker, but not by trying to be a filmmaker, you know? And, and um, to, to, to cut this long story short, like my, my journey of expectation was built upon institutions. I was like, I'm going to get into the National Film and Television School because that's what filmmakers do. They go to the National Film and Television School. And, and uh, I didn't get in. I, I, I applied like, I think three times and didn't get in. And so three years of heartbreak of just like, I had this expectation, I had this path I'd written for myself and it didn't happen. Now I'm working at Netflix Animation and I've, I've worked with Henry Selleck, which is actually a Coppola connection because he worked on, uh, he worked on Life Aquatic, Aquatic yeah. Steve Zissou, you know, like, um, and actually I, I have even more um, Wes Anderson connections because uh, Selleck's movie, Wendell and Wild, I just finished, you know, uh, the production designer is the same production designer from Isle of Dogs. Oh, amazing. Uh, so just to give you an indication of how beautiful this movie is going to look like, um, and, and, and a lot of the animators actually worked on the fantastic Mr. Fox, uh, who I met when I went to Portland, Oregon. And they told me some really great stories. I, I, maybe I'll tell you a little bit of, uh, about that at the end. But, um, but uh, uh, cut that long story short, me and my girlfriend revisited England after a long period away. And I was showing her Oxford. I was, we were walking around and it's a beautiful town, beautiful university town, lots of great buildings. And I was just showing her all of the uh, college campuses, you know, like walking past the Radcliffe camera, the Bodleian Library, the Ashmolean, and just like saying, oh, and here are the grounds. This is the Oxford University. We went past these massive gates. You could see into this like beautiful green uh, um, sort of courtyard, very much like Rushmore. 
And uh, and Dana looked at them and she was like looking going, yeah, they're good. And I was like, what do you think of them? And then she said, well, t- can I be perfectly honest? I think all I see are really, really tall, high stone walls that no one can see over. And the big message that I see is only good people can go in here. Mm-hmm. And back when Oxford was, you know, first created, that meant white men, mm-hmm. you know, that people of color now can go into the university, women can go into the university. But for the longest time, those walls signified that only great men are allowed to learn in these hallowed halls, that, that, that there's this massive privilege that has now been given a literal wall, a stone wall, so strong, you can't see it, you can't climb up and see it. There's no way you can get in unless you're brilliant. And that is a small, small aperture, you know, mm-hmm. um, that only a few, a few lucky privileged people can get into. And she said, you know, walking around this town actually explains an awful lot about you to me, that you grew up thinking you were going to do, do and be these things because you were surrounded by this brilliance and, and there's these symbols, these archaic symbols of achievement. You know, that they're like, you know, Oxford is the home of J.R.R. Tolkien, the home of C.S. Lewis. It's a great author town. It's a town that is my Rushmore. And, uh, and, and, and I thought about the concept of walls when I was watching Rushmore again. Like, Max is, keeps going back to Rushmore. He keeps going back to the campus, even though he's been kicked out. Mm-hmm. He burns leaves there, like in, a, in Defiance, but he still chooses Rushmore as the place to go. Yeah. Because that's the only place that makes any sense to him. It was his plan. So, so it, 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 I think the movie is so great about it because it, it, not only does it um, take apart the, the, the sort of incel idea of like, I'm entitled to the person I'm infatuated with or, or like, you know, like, like that everyone has to conform to what I think. But also the idea that institutions don't matter. Yeah. That like brilliant people can come from anywhere. And in fact, a lot of the best people are dropouts from institutions. You know, a lot of, uh, and, and, and then I was thinking about it, like through the, the, the prism of my own life, like not only have I been able to have meaningful relationships after I got rid of all that bullshit that I had in my mind about what my life was supposed to be, but also I actually ended up in the industry that I wanted through a completely different path. And, and so, so, so much of Rushmore conforms to like my formative years, but it means so much more to me now as an adult looking back, it, it, it's only become more therapeutic to me as I get older. It reaffirms everything that I've learned. And, and I, especially as I've become more and more mortified over my past behaviors and beliefs, you know, like I look back at it and I cringe when I look at Max Fisher. It makes, it feels, it's like one of my favorite films to watch and yet it feels like going to the dentist. Yeah. It's like, it's, it, it, it's necessary root canal mm-hmm. for the soul to watch Max Fisher be such an idiot and to know that it's not a million miles away from what I was and to be like, okay, but I, but I'm on the right path now. Well, I think that's what the film very much says as well. It's that thing of like, once Max strips away that kind of, once he gets rid of that albatross around his neck, he gets rid of Rushmore as that ideal is when he can truly become who who he is. And like, kind of, Mm -hmm. he can accept the fact that like, He's had this glaring like love interest in front of his eyes the whole time. And he's kind of like Yeah. He takes those things that he learnt from Rushmore and like he wants to kind of like he sets up the kind of um the society for 
for like the kite flyers and stuff like that. The kite flying society, yeah. Well, that that scene with the kite is my favorite scene. It's so beautifully shot. Yeah. Margaret is so great. Um, one little uh, tangent about Margaret. I love that she is an Asian character in that film. And Wes Anderson is not known for a lot of diversity in his movies. There's a lot of white characters <laughs> who are the heroes. I really like that Margaret Yang does not conform to two very pernicious Asian stereotypes. So one is that she fakes her results. So she she doesn't hit, uh, take the box of Asians are all incredibly smart, mm-hmm. like overachievers. She actually like is also proving that she's someone who has high expectations for her that she doesn't necessarily always meet. And she's honest about it. But the other thing I, I, I like about it, this is said a lot in podcasts uh, um, that we both listen to, which is like, I hate the Asian stereotype of being mysterious and quiet and mute. Mm-hmm. So she's uh, she's a character who who talks and 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 has a lot to say. and has a great personality. She's like she's Max Fisher's perfect partner. Well, yeah, and and so I actually really love her. She's a small role, but she she actually navigates a couple of cliches and and does away with them. Which I like. well, well, yeah, and you're you're showing like visually that she throws herself into things because obviously she plays like the mm-hmm. the girlfriend in Max's play. Put he's putting on at the. Uh, at the like communities uh, yeah the kind of like yeah. uh, at the school which i at the school i, I love those references because i think like that one specifically is like a kind of reference like a blood in blood out type film where you've kind of got like the the the, the cholos riding around in their cars and stuff like that and um and then like yeah the play he puts on at the end which like in which he proposes to her character at the end, which is perfect, like the romantic apocalypse now. Yeah, and and it feels like that. That for me, it feels like Wes Anderson and Owen Wilson are saying, like, we know who your uncle is, Jason. We're go- yeah, just so you know, we're we're gonna lean into these into these homages. Yeah. Well, there's a there's a there's another perfect homage as well uh, near the beginning of the film when Max is in guggenheim's office when he's first told mm. like he's gonna be expelled from the school essentially yeah. and he says like oh can't i just like float on by or like can't mm. i just skate on by which is yeah a direct reference to a line that um sal says to tom hagen in the godfather when they're kind of yeah. when they're all like crowding around him and he's like tom can you get me off the hook for old time's sake can't do it sally And that's like yeah. nearly word for word what Max says in that like, and it's it's great because it all ties back into that thing of like, I imagine at the age of seventeen, like, yeah, a deep cut. It's like yeah, my first short film that I ever made was Reservoir Dogs in a school toilet. But like, it's that thing at the you know like like yeah, yeah. we have all these immediate direct influences, which is just whatever we watched a year before. But you know, but I think it's that thing that like at the age of seventeen that Max. Uh, that uh, Jason Schwartzman wouldn't have known that that's a reference to The Godfather, yeah. and it's yeah. like I just I just love the fact that those guys were like we're gonna gonna put that in there and like yeah kind of like looking to like the the end of this film and like some of the scenes so like that, there's a couple of lines that I absolutely love in this film. One of them mm. is when uh, Max kind of comes back to the school and is told that like uh, Bucken is after him. Yeah, and he says, "Tell that stupid Mick I've made a list of things to do." T- yeah, tell that stupid Mick you've made my list of things <laughs> to do. Today. Yeah, and it's like <laughs> I'm gonna pop a cap in his ass. That, like that's brilliant, and like again, the character of Dirk 
Jack Calloway is fantastic. And there's that beautiful scene between those two in the barber shop where he presents mm. Max with the penknife with the kind of like yeah. his year's tenure at Rushmore Academy. And um as yeah, as we get to the end, and a bit of a bit of trivia as well, all the photos of Edward Appleby, so um Mrs. Mm. Cross's like dead husband, all of the photos in his bedroom are Owen Wilson as a kid. That's so cool. So, like, even though he's not in the film, he's like he, he's a, he's, in the, he's in the film. Yeah, he's yeah. Edward Appleby. Yeah, he, which is funny because his character dies at sea in Steve's in the Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou, which is such an interesting yeah. nod there. Like, they, they they didn't even know it's just like it just works out nicely. Well, it's funny because like we haven't even mentioned the some the funny thing is this movie's so dense we haven't even mentioned like how brilliant Brian Cox is. In this oh, movie, Brian like, Cox, Guggenheim. Brian Cox, he's is so fucking yeah. funny. I, the way that he charts him from like this really sort of like quite sweet sort of like gravitas kind of like dean of this of this college of, of, of this high school and then as it goes along his patience with max just erodes and it goes to that point where he's trying to get miss miss, miss cross fired and he's like i never took you for an informant max and max is like what's that supposed to mean and then brian cox just goes <laughs> like just brian cox just ends up having no fucks whatsoever right through to the fact that after after dr guggenheim has a stroke max's voice is the only thing that will stir him <laughs> out of his like coma it's like it's pressure what do you want <laughs> it's so funny yeah the, the thing is like the supporting cast throughout this film are, are fantastic whether it's uh, the, it's exceptional the, yeah Scottish actor who plays Buchan as well, like that. Yeah, he's fantastic. Like, he... I, I I loved hearing him on the um, Dead Eyes podcast recently because he was in Band of Brothers in the scene where the the, the host of Dead Eyes, you know, lost a role, and like uh, he he was interviewed in that podcast, and I was like, oh, it's really nice to hear that guy and to hear that he's actually a really sweet dude. But like, you know, like, Buchan is a great character. Yeah, he's he's more than a bully because just like the movie deconstructs everyone in the story. Not only is the victim and the, and the hero not the hero or the victim, you know, Max Fisher is actually the architect of his own doom, but Bucken is also not really the villain either. He's just a guy who's got his own problems because when I think back to my own bullies in Oxford, like, you know, a lot of them were, were making up for other feelings that they had and, and problems of their own. And and they were creating a character as much as I was. You know, their character was, I don't give a fuck. Yeah, and I'm sure if you looked into Buchan's life, and he's like, what, he's a Scottish kid who's at an academy in uh, mm. Texas, I think, like, it, like it's where, yeah. it, where that academy would have been, despite its kind of really autumnal-looking, like, setting. Like, but, like, yeah, so he, he's there. So his life is probably not great. He's probably got, like probably living in some really strict circumstances where he's like living with another family and stuff like that do you know what mm. i mean like he's he's probably yeah. he's probably there on some kind of exchange program and then like yeah it's just i don't know yeah we we've mentioned earlier the actor um uh, little jeans and stuff like that and i love the way that yeah. um it all plays back in at the end so when we come to yeah. like max's final play we get that panning shot of just kind of mm. like everyone we've been introduced to everyone that's been in his orbit this whole time i mean the third act's really beautiful right down like i mean from from that you know kite flying scene onwards like the kite flying scene is actually really important to the plot because mm -hmm. if you chart that this whole film is about someone who's deceiving himself and others that the kite flying scene is is so transformative for him because he sees margaret margaret admits to having faked results and then just says immediately after that like you know you're a jerk to me you know you're a real jerk to me and and he says, I'm sorry. And it's the same scene in which he says to um, 
to to uh, his friend Calloway, like, I'm I'm sorry that I lied about your mother giving me a hand job in the back of her car. Um, it's like basically this whole sequence is the first time Max has an actual honest conversation with anyone. Mm. It, he's not pretending that his father's a surgeon. He's not pretending that he is some brilliant genius. He just has a conversation with Margaret, and that's why she's the right girl for him. They have a moment where they're but where she's just Margaret and he's just Max. So that's what jump starts him back to creating the kite flying society because it's like he he finds a way to take everything that he that he is that he loves and then put it into his own identity that is his real identity. He doesn't have to make one, and so that's why immediately afterwards when he sees Bill Murray, uh, two things. You know how. He, his blazer is like his superhero costume uh, from Rushmore. Yeah. The first time you see him not in that blazer is after that scene, and he shows up in this all green tweed suit jacket well, so, like, and trousers. Yeah, it's like, it's like velvet, it's like, right? It's like he's made his own, but it's like he's made his own superhero yeah. outfit. He looks like the fucking Riddler. You know what I mean? He looks like it's like, exactly. I mean, like I mean, I mean, right down to the fact that like when he's when he puts the bees in Bill Murray's apartment, there's that amazing slow motion shot of him leaving and putting gum on the. Um, on the wall uh, as he's as he's like leaving and he looks like a superhero villain like he looks like a like a member of you know gotham's uh, uh criminal yeah, establishment yeah. but but when he shows up with bill murray he's chosen an outfit that is max fisher and he's no longer pretending to be max fisher of rushmore and then when he takes bill murray in that's the other thing that makes me almost want to cry is when he introduces his father the barber to bill murray after spending so long saying that he's a, a like a, a brain surgeon and so everything from that point onwards, the final third act is just Max being honest. Mm -hmm. And honesty is the key that unlocks everything else in his life to the fact that like, you know, at the very end, yeah, we should talk about just like that, 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 that ending. Cause after the play, it's like, I don't know. I, I it, for all of the sort of like moments that make me feel really uncomfortable about my own life when I watch the movie, it has such a beautiful final note yeah that is the thing it's a film that sideswipes you in the fact that throughout it you're kind of deconstructing this like horrible little kid basically and then like mm. you build him up into this way where at the end you're like there is still that trace of the old max fisher like even down to the fact mm. like he's still kind of got that like way about him where he's like clicking his fingers like so yeah go get me some more ketchup but it, it seems mm. a lot more manageable at this point. It's, well, it's like, like he's using his powers for good, not evil. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He's using them to help people and build people up. He wants to get Bloom and Miss Cross back together. And, and the film does a very good job, actually, of, of juggling a happy ending with, with reality. In that it, I like that Wes Anderson stops just short of letting you know whether Miss Cross and Bloom go get back together. It's like an ending that feels kind of in in the right way ambiguous. That, that 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 there's a kind of reconciliation there, but it's never fully explicitly stated, you know. Um, and then at the very end, um, I love that Margaret like identifies herself as Max's girlfriend, mm -hmm. and and um, uh, Max's father has a dance with with his teacher from the public school, and you see everyone is enjoying this after show party together, and then Miss Cross asks Max to dance. And I, th this is interesting for me because I want to ask what your opinion is because, like, we've mentioned how brilliant Olivia Williams is in this film because she has to walk a line. Her performance when she takes his glasses off and they go and dance is actually really, in my opinion, like, detailed. Mm -hmm. 
You know what I mean? It's got a lot of texture in it. And like, what do you think the last look between them signifies? I think it's an element of like they're at like almost peace at being friends. And like, and it's that thing. I know it's like a weird concept to be like arguably a woman in her late twenties, early thirties. Mm. It's friends with a fifteen-year-old boy. But then again, this is like I don't know. It, it, it it's it's played in a way that like in this world, it kind of all makes sense. Like Max, yeah. Max is, and, and the way that Max is as well. Like we've all met those kids who are very precocious and kind of like seem like a 40 year old man when you meet them at like 15 do you know what i mean it's like yeah. yeah why wouldn't they like why wouldn't a 45 year old man be their like best friend and stuff like that yeah. and I, I i yeah i i do think that thing of like it's because it can be read and i know i know there are people who have issues with this film like because of the whole like that whole like age gap thing and stuff like that but it's never like it's never fully explored. Like, let's let's be honest. Th- this isn't Lolita. Like, <laughs> no, no. She one hundred percent makes it clear that attraction doesn't enter into it when she first rejects him. She's like, "You're fifteen years old. That's not happening." And so, like, she's one hundred percent, you know, across the board responsible in the way that she treats him. Um, but but the thing I like about that last moment is like, yeah, you're right. It's like it is a moment of them actually becoming friends because, like I said, like because Max has finally stopped pretending to be something that he isn't i i feel like when he looks at her and obviously that incredible you know uh ooh la la song you know uh comes on um uh, which is just so beautiful um you see he looks at her and she takes his glasses off and i almost feel like it's like it's almost like she actually meets max for the first time yeah. when he's the first time he's not pretending to be something else and there's something incredibly powerful about when someone has actually fully actualized themselves well I th- you know when they when they are you know finally able to let go of pretend i think it might be a case of the fact as well that like he may like i don't know somehow resemble uh her dead mm. husband and like it's that yeah. thing of like she takes off those glasses and like it looks more like him but it's like that thing of like she appreciates the kind of like that aspect of him but at the same time like it's like i've got yeah i've I've very much got got a friend here and i like i kind of yeah and and and, yeah sorry go ahead no i just i just love that kind of whole like ending and like even like and we get glimpses to kind of stuff that wes anderson would do a lot Mm. more in his later career with like there there is a moment of mr little jeans in the background doing like you know the trick with a rope where like you pretend mm. to do a knot and then it like it comes open yeah. and it's like then obviously later on down the line in Wes Anderson's career it's like you have that moment when uh they're like they're walking in uh Moonrise Kingdom and you've got all like all the crazy things going on in the background and everything's yeah. kind of like very stylized and to the point that it's like, yeah, all, all the lateral tracking. Shots yeah. 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 Wanners. Yeah. So, but you, I mean like, yeah. And, and, and that uh, ensemble, like, you know, as we've said, how brilliant the ensemble is that, that final shot where he goes full Anderson and goes into like really super slow motion as it, as it goes to them dancing on the dance floor. I love the fact that even Brian Cox in his wheelchair is like wheeled into the corner of the frame. And because it's so slow, it's almost like he's created like a, a modern Renaissance painting yeah. before the curtain falls on it. You know, that wonderful framing device, the curtain. But, but you see that ensemble and all the weird, wonderful characters he's created. But it's sort of like 
crystallized, almost like frozen, you know, yeah. um, for the audience in that final frame. So I was amazed to find out that all of those like curtain shots were done practically. And like they actually mm. had like, so they projected onto the curtain. Oh, the words? The words. And then like, That's so cool. but it was done like with a certain projector in that like, obviously once they opened, it couldn't be seen mm. anymore. Yeah. It, and and then like it's so brilliant i mean like there's so many technical aspects of the movie that we don't we're not even touching on but it's because it's just so i mean like even the editing choices like i love the framing structure of the seasons and and going through an entire year of this boy's mm -hmm. life but there's that amazing cut to uh, the song i am waiting by the stones when bill murray pr takes a twig off of the tree that max had rigged to crush him in the graveyard and it does a perfect cut of the tree landing to the cut to the curtain yeah. and the next the next season yeah well yeah like we we could talk for hours about the needle drop i i, I love the moment when it's um uh oyoko by uh john lennon uh, is playing mm. and they have that kind of like montage of max and bloom becoming friends again and they're kind of like I love they've got that like them running around like, yeah, like exercising like flash, <laughs> like flash dance in the in the in the still mill and stuff like that and um lifting their little like lifting their little pipes yeah, yeah, up yeah. like weights it's it's so charming yeah and like i just i i think i think it's a very like it's it's, it's such a like a charming film and like it is that thing that it's got such a great payoff at the end of it because it is that thing that mm. it makes you squirm. It makes you like, go, oh, this is cringe. It makes you cringe throughout it. But then like that payoff, it's like you go, oh, fuck. Like you realize oh, I, I, I've been there. Like, do you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and you just have to, you do punch the air for Max at the end. You're just so happy for him to no longer be imprisoned in his own, in like expectations. Mm -hmm. It's just like I've never like when I was a teenager. I um it, this came out before my first big crush, but I, I I revisited that movie a lot in my teens because that character I felt so such a kinship with because we were both as deluded as each other, and and that movie gave me a language to be able to laugh at myself. Mm -hmm. You know that made how histrionic I became over over people who didn't return my affections. You know like like. It made me, it, it, it allowed me a visual language to be able to step outside of myself and be like, you're being ridiculous. Yeah. Like, like, and don't worry, this too shall pass, which is the other message of the movie, which is that it charts the entire stages of infatuation, which is that eventually infatuation ends and reality sets back in. Yeah, you know yeah, what yeah. I mean? So, so um, you just feel so much happiness to see him comfortably settle back into his, his life. And, um, I think just to finish my thoughts on it, just because, like, as I said, this is like, you know, I actually have a really emotional connection to this movie, and it's it's it, more than a lot of other Wes Anderson movies. Um, probably just because I really find them technically and visually stunning and, and enjoyable, but I don't relate to all the characters as much as I relate to Max. Mm. But the thing with Max is um, that final moment um, when when they go to dance together as friends. I definitely had a different feeling to that ending now than I did when I watched it. Because when I first watched it, I watched it th through the prism of I'm living Max's pain. Mm -hmm. And this time I was struck by a very different emotion, which was uh, regret. I was, this movie actually, the ending's beautiful, but it's also kind of sad to me. Mm -hmm. 
because um, like I said, I, I think back with a lot of mortification at how much of an emo <laughs> like fool I was when I was a teenager. And, and there were plenty of times when I would like fall for somebody and, and I wasn't really seeing them. I was just seeing my own needs to, to feel validated or to feel loved or to like, you know, to have what other people had, you know, like extensions of my loneliness, which is just no way to, to relate to people. And, and, and everyone was perfectly sweet to me, but there were people who, you know, they would see that like when I was young, they'd, they'd see that I was interested in them and they would just walk the other way because they were smart. You know what I mean? Like, you know, um, because they weren't idiots, you know, and the, the feeling I felt when I was thinking back on this movie, and the reason why I think it's really powerful to me is that I think the biggest regret of my teenage years, like, like there's plenty that's just teenage shit, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? But if I had a single regret of my teens, it's something that I could not have possibly understood until now, which is how much I missed out on having friends who were women. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, like for a long time I thought, oh, I missed out on having a relationship because I didn't do relationships. But now I've, you know, I've been in relationships and, uh, you know, now that that whole thing's been demystified to me, but the biggest gift of my adult life is having friends who are girls. Yeah. It's like removing that automatic, like, process that happens in your brain when you meet a girl and it's like oh that person is immediately in in your mind as a potential person you could have a relationship with or a potential someone that you could court in some way and it's like after you settle down into yourself and you become you know actualized human being you live in reality and, and even you know if you were single like like that there's, there's this entire other half of the world that's a completely different experience to you and we as men have not been trained by society in any way to properly understand or interact with it. We've been, we've been uh, conditioned to, to see it as, or to see them as, as, as conquests or as, as, as something to bolster your ego in some way that I am loved because I'm with this person or I am vital because I bedded this person. And now when I think about like my friends who do podcasts, my friends from college, the people I work with, some incredible story artists, filmmakers, you know, um, just just the wealth of, of, of just incredible human beings mm -hmm. that I have now had the privilege of knowing. It just, it comes to me like how utterly cheap it is to just reduce them when you're a young person to that. And like, I don't look back on my school days and think, God, I really wish I had been cooler. Like, like, you know that song, like the, the end song is like, I wish that I know, knew what I know now when I was younger. And I do, but not because I wish that I could go back and be cooler and get a girlfriend, but because I wish I could go back and undo some of those friendships I never got the chance to have mm -hmm. with people who were just great people, like just, just mates, you know, like the, 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 the number of things that I could have learned, you know, times I could have had and and connections i could have made and so now i feel like you know nowadays i it, it's my pleasure to, to try my best to just undo that but some of those things can never be undone you know and that's a regret that i have and this this movie you know hits the nail on the head for me on that and so 
it's one of the reasons why I, I think it's just a, a fantastic movie and definitely the, the Wes Anderson movie that speaks to me the most. Thank you so much for, for sharing that, David. And I think something that really chimes to that perfectly and this film weirdly subverts is the fact that a, a lot of films, especially in the kind of like early 2000s to mid 2000s, um, created this thing of like, well, it's male writers writing women. And I think it kind of like, mm. it, I don't know, it, it very much plays to how a lot of like men then looked at women, where it's like this kind mm. of like the, the 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 invention of the manic dream, like the, the uh, yeah, pixie dream. Pixie well, dream the girl. male gaze is not just visual; it is also what you write. Yeah, and it's, it's like I think it was perfectly summed up on an episode of Films to Be Buried with the Brett Goldstein podcast, where they kind of like look back at garden state and say like looking back mm. at that film now you go oh no like you you realize like you don't want like at that point it's like you you, you don't want to you don't want to date you don't want to yeah it's like you don't want to find a woman who's got all those like basically if you wanted to date someone who likes all the same stuff as you uh, like especially mm. when you're a teenager and you're watching those films it's like well just date one of your friends then like date your male friend who's into the same things or like do you know what I mean like like mm. and and for me a film that like very much i think i don't know very much is the way that you kind of look at rushmore for me it's high fidelity that thing of like yes for years another classic movie for years i lived i kind of lived by that motto of like it's not what you're like it's what you like that matters mm. and mm. it's that thing of like i remember giving the book of that to uh to an ex-girlfriend and like i kind of like do you know what i mean like i i'd idolized rob gordon and she like kind of yeah. she took it on holiday with her and she read it and then like kind of came back to me and was like hey, he's a bit of a he's a bit of a dick <laughs> he is he is it's another great character who the writer if not the people always reading it knows is is in the wrong you know there's someone taking aim at their own behaviors and owning them you know yeah whereas like at, yeah it's a masterpiece at, at the time when you're like a kind of thing you're like yeah i'm really into like obscure music i'm really into like mm. vinyl and like being elitist about like bands or films and stuff like that and then you realize like i oh, know that's quite like it's not until you get hindsight and you realize it's quite like toxic behavior and it's not about it's deeply toxic yeah. it's so toxic yeah it's like you're just a gatekeeping dickhead do you know what i mean and it's like yeah. as i get older i realize like oh no i'm not rob gordon i'm dick mm. i'm dick you know like the bald guy who works yeah, in the shop yeah you're dick where it's like oh, I so yeah I, I just want to share things that i love with with people do you know what I mean yeah. it's like I, I don't i might have my barry tendencies now and then where i'm like what you don't know about this band fuck yeah you. <laughs> yeah exactly exactly but yeah like um yeah I've... we live in an online world you can't live in an online world and not become barry <laughs> at some point you know what i mean <laughs> but deep down we're all more of a dick we we, a good, we are we dick. are we've all we've all had our max fisher moments but ho yeah. hopefully we've come out the end of it we've written our heaven and hell and we've uh, <laughs> found our Margaret Yang. Perfect. Well, well, David, um, let's, yeah, let's score this film. And the scoring yeah. system on this podcast is quite unique. And I always ask, what would be your perfect wine pairing for this film? 
Okay, so I thought a little bit about this, and um, I'm not a very good connoisseur of wine, but then again, I, I part of me feels, feels like Max isn't either. Mm -hmm. Then Max would just get the most expensive wine on, on the list because he would know Bloom was going to pick up the check for it um, or, or, or charge it to like, <laughs> their manufacturing company. But you know what? I'm going to forego the wine, and I'm going to say this movie is best enjoyed with an underage whiskey and soda. Perfect. That's just... That's that's that, that you know if 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 he can write a hit play then why can't he have a drink to unwind himself? Whiskey and soda it is. Well, I I I'm going to say for this film just because it's my last chance to mention it that uh, this will be enjoyed with a Budweiser because uh, just to mention uh, Herman Bloom's perfect amazing yes Budweiser shorts which like I have you sent me that pic that they exist somewhere well yeah like 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 his ones are actually budweiser but somebody's created these amazing like bloom budweiser shorts so if you've seen the film the shorts he's wearing and so yeah and it's like i i've i, I i've since looked and you you can actually get the budweiser ones as well which i think may that's incredible maybe a purchase for me for this summer to... We know what to get you for your birthday. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but that, they, that 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 that's a perfect answer i think and um one of Francis Ford Coppola's notes on the film when he saw it was the wine that is behind Max at that dinner scene mm. um, is actually Coppola like winery's rival's wine. Oh. And, and that is one of the notes that he made to them when he saw the film was like, I think I think it's perfect. They've got all these lovely nods to him, but then they do, the ultimate snub. <laughs> Anderson alienating Coppola right, uh, right off the bat. He's going to wake up and find fantastic Mr. Fox head on a pillow, <laughs> bloodily, like next to him. <laughs> so, how how much uh, like are you paying for that bottle of wine, David? Um, do you know what? I've got like a limit. I'm like in the in the i'd like to believe i'd spend more but i'm i'm i think i think that 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 uh that after a certain amount it's just them taking the piss yes. no matter how good the wine is so I, I i'd probably give it about you know what it depends on the occasion but i could go up to like 25 perfect 25 quid 25 dollars i mean like like you know like there's a there's a little leeway there if it went up to 30 if it was like a really special occasion but like very very few instances in which i would drink wine anyway so. But yeah, if this and it would probably be like something really, really easy, like Pinot Grigio. <laughs> it would be like wouldn't even be a red. Perfect, perfect. Well, um, I, th I think we know the answer to this one. But would you recommend people check out this film? Absolutely. I mean, I'm 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 not going to be didactic and say that it's like required viewing, but I wish every teenage boy could be sat down and and made to watch this film because it is a perfect. Um, how to on overcoming a lot of the problems that young boys struggle with uh, when they first become aware of their feelings and their desires. I think it's a perfect antidote to toxic um, uh, um, sort of masculine fantasies precisely because it points out that the emperors have no clothes. You know what I mean? I'm... And uh, yeah, so yeah, absolutely. I, I, I'd recommend it to people of all ages. I'm very much looking forward to like showing this one to my son when he's like of an age and like that thing of yeah. like, I think, I think even a kid would love it because of Callaway, you know, like that there are characters that everyone would love in this. Yeah. I, I, and I think it should be prescribed to boys of 15 
and then again mm. you should like have it marked in your calendar for when you like when you become a parent to then watch it again. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? When you become of age and it's kind of like you're far enough from your teenage years to watch it again and then like kind of I don't know, see it through the the bloom perspective or And also if for no other reason that that this will make it a, a given that you will then go and watch the rest of Wes Anderson's film because it's the perfect signature film for him. Well, yeah, and I think it's that thing, as I said earlier, it is the the, the final departure, like, it's that kind of stepping stone before Mm -hmm. kind of like Wes Anderson land, do you know what I mean, where it's this kind of like, everything after then kind of, even though Tenenbaums is set in New York, it's like that thing of like, Mm. it's not New It's Wes Anderson's New York. Yeah, Yeah. whereas this, like, seeing Max in the kind of like the school and stuff like that and it's that thing of like mm. oh i think this is like the last uh, wes anderson film where we see working class people well, like, to like, some to we, some we degree criticize the movie. It, it is possible to nitpick this film i mean this movie has things that that you know could be better in terms of representation he ends up in an inner city school obviously he ends up with margaret yang but like you know you think that would be an opportunity to inject more you know characters of color into the story and you know he works with people for his play but but you know, the the cast, like all Wes Anderson casts, are you know pr- primarily white mm-hmm. and very much you know male oriented. You know, so so yeah. I mean, like it's not a movie that can't be criticized. It's just a movie that I absolutely adore um, for what it is. Yeah, you know? and I, I think Wes Anderson very much falls into that kind of same criticism that a lot of people level at Sofia Coppola, where it's that thing that like they are writing about white privileged people and and it, it's a difficult one because it is that thing of like with Sophia Coppola it's like well I think that is all she has ever known do you know what I mean like yes. so it's like <laughs> if anyone has the right to talk about it it is probably her but also it means that like you know does that mean that the you know that, that she's got more diverse stories in her you know what i mean like that's that's the interesting thing yeah. is like but sometimes someone's specific worldview is exactly what makes them perfect for a specific piece you know exactly if if all sophia coppola made was lost in translation you know that's still a big bucket of wind to me because mm-hmm. it's feels so pure in, in its focus you know and, and another great murray performance of course well let's talk about the coppola family in a wider uh, yeah. perspective in that uh, which coppola member would you ki- family member would you keep but in doing so, mm. you had to get rid of every single filmography of every other Coppola family. Well, see, this is this is where you get me into <laughs> into um, into uh, Sophie's Choice territory because you're asking me to sacrifice one of my friends, and one of them is you. <laughs> because because if. Um, <laughs> If um if I don't choose Nicolas Cage, then the Cage in podcast doesn't happen. We don't meet, so, so and you don't have a podcast. So I just want you to know, I apologize to that, that I'm basically destroying destroying everything you've worked so hard to build. <laughs> Talk about the butterfly effect. I flap my wings. Petros Petsilovus disappears from my from my entire life. Um. So, so I'm going to have to say what I think is inevitable, because I think a lot of people are going to have to inevitably conclude this, that I have to keep Francis Ford Coppola, and that's not a mark against any of the other people. In fact, I wish I could keep Nicolas Cage. I wish I could keep, you know, Jason Schwartzman. I wish I could keep a lot of these people, because obviously I just spent uh, like a whole two hours talking about how much I fucking love Rushmore. But the problem with it is that 
It's about the knock-on butterfly effect, which is that Francis Ford Coppola disappears, then he never goads George Lucas into making Star Wars. He never dares George Lucas to become a filmmaker. Uh, George Lucas doesn't make Star Wars. Because of that, George Lucas doesn't make Indiana Jones with Steven Spielberg. And so Steven Spielberg's career uh, goes off in a different direction. Because Star Wars doesn't exist, Star Trek never gets revived mm -hmm. because, it, you know, after vanishing in the 60s from the TV show, it only, the motion picture was only, you know, bankrolled because they wanted to have their own Star Wars. So because of that, the Spotlight podcast disappeared and <laughs> suddenly Liam and Matt and Paul are out on their asses. And it's like, basically, he's the one thread that you, you pull him and the entire rug goes up. But the funny thing about it is that, like, I don't even know if it's possible to remove Francis Ford Coppola um, and, and, and lose um, or lose everyone else. Because if you did lose everybody else, right, but only kept Francis Ford Coppola, then surely Francis Ford Coppola would still end up making all their careers anyway. Yeah. So it, it goes oh, into existential yeah, territory. Does in. Francis Ford Coppola like like you could say like oh I'd want to keep Nicolas Cage, but if you kept Francis Ford Coppola, Nicolas Cage might still end up becoming Nicolas Cage. Would they? Is it? Is is this a reality where they're literally removed from existence and it's just Francis Ford Coppola? It's Francis Ford Coppola only, I'm afraid. Yes, but like okay, well then we will be <laughs> in in that case. I'm terribly sorry. I know the Caged in podcast. You know, it's, no, I, I know you put a lot of work into it, but that's perfectly fine. Love, and I, 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 I just love movies too much, man. I totally hear your sentiments because Francis Ford Coppola, like it can be argued, created the blockbuster, like. Like yeah. a film never did the kind of sales a film did before The Godfather, like, and it's like that thing. Of like, I think like national distribution kind of hit its like yeah. peak at for its time with The Godfather, mm. and it's like there's so many films. Do you know what I mean you wouldn't have had people mm. like pushing for the stuff after that? And it's like I don't know. Would without without The Godfather, would we have even got The Exorcist? Do you know what I mean like? Would would people be make, making those chances on stuff that is very adult centric, that like do you know what mm. I mean? But can also yeah, play I mean, to like, a it, wide it, audience. It is insane to think that like three of the most influential filmmakers of the twentieth century all were in the same basic trio of friends. Like the notion of a brat pack today feels almost unheard of. Like, can you imagine another? like room of three directors who are going to have that much of an impact or ripple effect on cinema i can't you know i mean like obviously you need a kiraku to get the star wars too mm -hmm. but like you know i mean in terms of in terms of the the coppola family like that is a nexus of talent right there well well i've said it without like i've said it before on this podcast without francis ford coppola literally seeing george lucas because he he had won a competition through his university to mm. be on like a soundstage at warner brothers where francis ford coppola was shooting um finian's rainbow and he kind of saw this guy who was under the age of 40 who had a beard do you know what i mean who was like mm. in his similar age bracket and went hey what are you doing hey i'm going to be filming this film the rain people do you want to come feel I'll, I'll, I'll get them to pay for you to do the behind the scenes footage yeah and didn't he like dare him to do like a popular film like something that wasn't sci-fi and then that's how we got american graffiti you know like yeah like basically francis ford coppola busting george lucas's balls 
is like the reason we have George Lucas. Well, yeah, and and I think is if it's not for that kind of like almost sibling rivalry aspect of like this thing of like, mm. well, I'm doing this, well, I'm gonna outdo you, like like that kind of gang had of this, and and it's like the thing of like. They wouldn't have had you wouldn't have had Star Wars in the way of like he's like oh well I want to one up you guys and it's like without that kind of like that butting back and forth yeah we wouldn't we wouldn't have got it but um we could that that this could be another two hour conversation so let me indeed I mean like I thought we were gonna have another two hours just on high fidelity (laughs) (laughs) we could have so. Yeah, let me ask you the ultimate question. Are they the greatest film family of all time? I think that they probably are for... But I'm going to split hairs about the definition of great because I think that they are great if you take the word great to mean breadth. They are the most widely spread out successful family. Because, you know, I was trying to think... I was, you know, racking my brains, like, what other examples are there of dynasties in film? You know, we have... The, the most it seems to get to is like a son or a daughter becoming an actor or director. So you've got your Jason and your Ivan Reitman. You've got your Tony Curtis and Jamie Lee Curtis. You've got like Tom Hanks and Colin Hanks. But like the Hankses aren't the Coppola's because there's still Chet Hanks, the fucking <laughs> shit white rapper. You know what I mean? Like, like it's like there's, there's, there's like none of them get that uh, breadth of like spread out across. And, and also like with people like Wes Anderson, just like, the, it, it's like their family has these tendrils that sort of like go into a root, uh, like get, become entwined with all these other roots of filmmaking that uh, that just means like you end up with your Spike Joneses and your Wes Anderson stuff like that. So much so that Wes Anderson, it's almost like an organism that grows its own ecosystem because then Wes Anderson has his players. So it's almost like um, there are copper connections. And I can even brag about having like in the most tenuous way, like Wes Anderson connections, mm-hmm. obviously from working with people who work with, you know, him on Fantastic Mr. Fox. Um, so I think as a as a creator of an ecosystem whereby talent can thrive, I mean, I guess you could call them great for sure. I can't think of, I certainly can't think of an example of a family that's, that's had more of an effect. You know, maybe there are in, in foreign films that we're not aware of that had a massive impact on cinema that we just, that, that, that we can't know from our Western lens. You know? Well, they've just got, they've got something for everyone, right? Like, so like if you, if yeah. they've got the Nick Cages, they've got the Schwartzmans, they've got the Plants for a Couple, mm. they've got the Sophias, they've got the Talia Shires. Do you know what I mean? It kind of like, it's, it, it's almost too much to fathom how, how kind of wide the web extends. It's funny you say that. It's funny you say that because one of my favorite shows that I've just gotten obsessed with recently is um, Succession on HBO. And Succession is, you know, a proper Faustian bargain drama Mm -hmm. comedy, but like, you know, with Shakespearean, Greek tragic, you know, uh, like, um, you know, qualities. And it's it's all about like the Murdoch family. It's about a news empire Mm -hmm. and about a mogul whose children are all completely fucked up because he was a monster. And, you know, it's Brian Cox, it's Dr. Guggenheim himself, <laughs> you know, you know, proving once again that he's fucking amazing. And all, uh, ironically, that series also begins with him having a stroke. <laughs> so it's it's like, you know, the, the, the whole thing is about them, you know, fighting over his legacy and fighting over his love. What I think is interesting about Succession is that Succession, you know, when I was thinking about the Coppola family, I was like, actually, when I listened to your first episode where you synopsized what everyone, you know, how everyone's connected, I was like, this doesn't sound a million miles away from like an HBO show succession. You know, like it's, it, I, I would love to see a show like on HBO or somewhere else 
about a filmmaking dynasty, because I bet that would be really good television. I mean, like, ironically, one of the children in succession is called Roman. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I bet you could tell a story um, about a filmmaker who's, a, who's made some of the most important movies in the last 50 years, but now might be past his prime and, and model him on a Coppola mm-hmm. and then have the other characters be his children and hangers on and people who are married to his children who are all also trying to become great storytellers in their own right. I bet you could make a great succession style show out of that. So yeah, like I think they're a great family because there's just so much there there to to mine for entertainment and for and for insight. I get I guess there's probably shades of the Coppola family in succession. I guess I guess that yeah. that, that kind of naming I bet a... they all sit in massively grand dinner table. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you can't imagine the Francis Ford Coppola doesn't have a huge wooden dinner table yeah. in some like place with a fireplace and like lots of taxidermy grizzly bears on the wall and shit. Well that 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 is entirely why I kind of like have modeled the artwork on this around the Godfather. Because it kind of feels like the kind of the film that very much speaks to who they are as a family. And you kind of like look to the Corleones, even, yeah, some of them are made up of Coppola's, Talia Shire mm. and uh, Sophia. So like there, there is that through line. But before we wrap it up, I, sh- I should ask you, um, did you find any Coppola connections between this film and others? Did, did anyone in this film work with the Coppolas anywhere else? Um, I'm not sure. I know that there's a blink and you miss it cameo by Alexis Bledel in this movie. I know that she's in the public school. So I don't know if she has any connections, but of the actors, I know Bill Murray works with Sofia Coppola. I know that, obviously, Roman Coppola will eventually work with Wes Anderson. Um, I'm not 100% sure. I'm sh- like, there have been times in my uh, film studies where I have, I've got to confess, confuse Wes Anderson and Spike Jones for the same person because they both <laughs> they're both like if they were in succession they would be cousin Greg they would be that they're like the fucking <laughs> they're the fucking um Ichabod looking motherfuckers you know what I mean they're they're like they're, they're like weird stringy guys with weird noses and they're kind of like you know uh quirky and, and hipstery and and they make these mercurial sort of like indies but well, um, yeah no I'm, I'm not aware of many other connections besides that well there's a big argument without without the Coppolas, there is no Spike Jones or Wes Anderson as we know them today, because it's kind of like the Coppolas have given them both their kind of leg up in the industry, mm. whether it's like the kind of fertile soil with which to plant, yeah, you know, the, their the, their legacies. The mm. success of Rushmore obviously let Wes Anderson do what he did next, and kind of if mm. it wasn't for Francis Ford Coppola passing over the script of being John Malkovich to Spike Jones, then we haven't got Spike Jones yeah. that we know today. But um, let me, yeah, it, it, I'm sure. I'm, I'm sure Francis Ford Coppola has been in the position to destroy people's careers. That is a real power. Yeah, you know that is something that I'm sure he must have. I'm sure if he, like, maybe even like further back in time, like there must have been a point where he was utterly untouchable, like The Godfather. Yeah, but like from doing the research of Francis Ford Coppola. He is very much a guy who, like, he's on the precipice of failure at all times himself. Mm. So, like, yeah. I don't think he's got much time. Like, I think he's nearly bankrupted the family multiple times for his kind oh, of, yeah. like, in, endeavours and kind of missteps that he's taken. And He is a fascinating filmmaker in that way. It's like, like you said, he has that, that string 
are absolute 100% all killer, no filler hits. And, and if you cut off his career after Apocalypse Now, it doesn't matter what movies he made after that. He's, he's one of the best directors who ever lived. It's weird. It's like he, so, so it's like, weirdly, he can actually fail horribly, mm-hmm. but he's still the guy who made the conversation. You know what I mean? It, it, it's such a strange thing to be a, a director of such extremes. Well, I, I don't want to talk mm-hmm. about it too much, but like his like 80s, some of his like 80s failures, as they were, mm-hmm. I love. So a, a, oh, I, I, I love one from the heart, like, mm-hmm. which is like, for all intents and purposes, a commercial and critical failure. Well, perhaps this is a good reason why you're doing copper connections for the podcast because I'm going to listen to these episodes and it might make me track them down. You know what I mean? Like that's actually nice to shine a little light on some of his lesser known, you know, uh, oh, that, that, quote unquote failures. There are some stinkers in there. Like let's be honest. At some point, I'm going to have to talk about Jack. Like or <laughs> yeah, like I'm going to have to talk about some of the bad ones, but it's all going to be part yeah. of the fun. Before I let you go, David, let me ask you possibly the the most important question of this podcast. What does Bill Murray say to Scarlett Johansson at the end of Lost in Translation? Permission to be like Max Fisher and be facetious? Mm-hmm. Um, if, if Bill had wanted us to hear, he wouldn't have whispered it. <laughs> so it's not for me to know. I think it's beautiful that I don't know, and I have no interest in guessing. Yeah. So that's my that's my facetious answer. I demur. Perfect. Well, David, thank you so much for coming and joining me and being my chapel partner for this episode. Um, where can people? It's my pleasure, and I I promise I promise your mother did not give me a hand job. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Oh, I know my mum. Type of thing she would have done. Ah, <laughs> uh, Jesus! Uh, don't worry, she doesn't listen to this, guys. It's never going to come back to me. Um, so, Dave, thank you, Mrs. Petsovers. Where can people keep up to date with you and everything you're doing? Um, well, you know, the, the, the funny thing about working in the animation industry is that I uh, have worked on some really cool things that I am not able to show anyone because of non-disclosure agreements. So, there's going to come a point in like a year and a half where suddenly my Twitter is going to become filled with, with like lots of shots and, and, and portfolio additions and things. But um, uh, if you're interested to hear just me talk about films or geek out and, and, uh, and basically fangirl over, you know, caged in and other podcasts in our, in our, you know, circle, then you can find me at, at the rumble on Twitter. Well, thank you so much, David, for coming and making some couple of connections with me. Mate, it's always a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. I hope to come back. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much to David Trumbull for this fantastic conversation. I'm sure you'll agree. We go to some really like deep and interesting places on this one. And I really, really want to thank uh, David for being so open and honest about this kind of, I don't know, toxic masculine bullshit that we, that we as young men seem to take ownership over women, stuff like that. And it's, I hope 
that this podcast can be a space to dispel some of that stuff and kind of get it out in the open that maybe if you are a younger listener or even if you're older and you're kind of feel disenfranchised and stuff like that by whatever or kind of feel yourself leaning towards this kind of dodgy incel culture and stuff like that 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 people people have gone through similar shit and there is there is light at the end of the tunnel so yeah hold on like get some fucking help (laughs) there's a yeah there's a there's a there's a lot of good people out there so yeah this yeah this episode means a lot to me i kind of like there's parts of it that kind of made me well up in the edit so yeah if you enjoyed this one please do get in touch like i know i say that every week but please this isn't just a shill to 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 now plug the uh, social media which is caged in pod on all social media so that is twitter instagram facebook and letterbox or if you want to kind of i don't know like talk about some of the issues that are raised in this episode a bit deeper you can always drop me an email which is caged in pod at gmail.com as for next week on the podcast i am joined by the lovely matt brothers who you may know from spotlight southern double deep and is paul dano okay to talk about the 1994 tim burton film ed wood little fun fact for you we actually recorded that episode on tim burton's birthday and neither of us figured out until after he recorded it so yeah uh that coupled with the fact that i lost the audio for the original uh version of this episode well my audio matt was a consummate professional and kept his audio so that is there somewhere but yeah this episode has been a long time coming so that uh, it's very good as well so tune in next week for that if you enjoyed this podcast and i said it at the beginning but it bears repeating at the end head on over to patreon.com forward slash cajun pod to chuck me a little bit of money each month uh, to help me keep the lights on it really does help um also head on over to apple podcast acast or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a five star rating and review it all really helps in all of the kind of stuff the visibility on the show and yeah would be a i'd love it i'd love it i really would i really would more people listening it's fun so as always i've been petrus pat Silvers, your guide through the crazy world of the coppola family tree so remember to keep it caged in and i'll catch you next time this podcast is presented by the breadcrumbs collective home of the pod charles cinecast caged in coppola connections a drip town limery main franchised and many more to come Our shows are all presented ad-free and made possible by listeners like you. Please support our shows by subscribing, leaving ratings and reviews, and becoming patrons at patreon.com. If you'd like to learn more about Breadcrumbs, head over to breadcrumbscollective.com. Breadcrumbs. It's more than a podcast network. It's family.